You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 172 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today's episode, we are discussing toothed whales. Whales that are toothed. Yes, or scientifically known, the odontocetes. Which means toothed whales. Mm-hmm. It's very consistent. It is. So this is the group that includes dolphins, orcas, the sperm whale, all your t- whales that aren't filter feeding, basically. Right. Not the, not the baleen whales. Mm-hmm. Not your blue whales and right whales and humpback whales. The other guys. Yes. Dolphins are toothed whales. We will be talking about this extremely diverse, extremely weird group and going through what sets them apart from their, you know, traditionally thought of whale ancestors, their big filter feeding cousins, what defines each type of toothed whale and what is their fossil record look like. This will be a slightly different episode since we're kind of zooming in further on a group than we usually would. Yeah, it's, it, this summer we have established a couple of trends. One of them is stuff in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And another one is returning to groups of animal life that we have already done other episodes about. Yeah. So uh, the last uh, Evolution of Whales episode, episode 41... Uh, we've come back. Yes. So how long will this trend of ocean discussions <laughs> that are related to previous episode topics last? Who can say? There's a lot of ocean out there. <laughs> and we will be talking about this topic because it is requested. By whom? This was requested quite a bit. Either generally toothed whales or specific groups were asked for by Jason, Roxy, Jackie, David, Levin, Sam, Orlando... Silty Clay Loam, WC, The Load, Lord Pyron, Patrick, Logical Ben, Kyla, and Maria. A lot of people want to hear us talk about toothed whales. There's a lot of toothed whales, and evidently a person for each kind of toothed whale that wants to hear about them. (laughs) So we put them all in the same episode so that we could all have a grand old time. A whale of a time, even. A whale of a time. Together. Now, before we get into it, dive into it, we, Uh we always have to use that one. We have some announcements and then the news. First up, our first announcement is that we have a Patreon. Hey, we sure do. Our Patreon and the patrons there on it support the podcast completely top to bottom. And when you sign up, you can get all sorts of extra goodies, bonus content, bonus episodes, extra time with us. We do live streams and chats. We also will shout out your name at certain levels, and so for this episode, we would like to welcome our new patrons, Alice, Amy, Blake, Caleb, David, and Sage. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting us. Hey, dear listener, if you would like to support our podcast and our science education efforts, please consider joining the Patreon. You can find a link in the episode description. Also, we've hinted at this before, we've got a couple of new things cooking up for the Patreon in celebration of a recent milestone. Stay tuned for more news about that. Yes, indeed. Not so, this episode. Stay tuned for future discussions. Yes, yes. Future episodes. You have to keep listening to the next episode. <laughs> That's how we get you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also down in that description, you will find links for other ways to get in contact with us or support us or find extra content, our Discord and so forth, our social medias. 
But you will also find a new link down there for the request form. We now on our website have a request form for you to formally make episode requests. It is the easiest, most straightforward way to get your requests directly to us for us to pull from for future episodes. Yes. Hey, another thing you'll find out in the episode description is a physical mailing address. Every now and then we get physical gifts, and then we like to uh, celebrate that it happened. Mm -hmm. We got a gift. Actually, not to the mailing address this time. (laughs) This was a gift brought hand-delivered at the museum from Caleb and Jackson. Two fantastic paintings of a snake and a croc in American Gothic style. We will be putting it on our website. We'll post it on social media. Check it out. Very cool. Uh, Caleb, a.k.a. Danger Spaghetti, who I believe has a presence online uh, with art stuff. Yeah, so check that out. These pieces are awesome. They gave us one previously that was glow-in-the-dark. These are UV-activated. Yeah. And and I am such a sucker for that kind of stuff, glowy things. (laughs) So these make me incredibly happy. Yes. Also, I said I believe has an online presence. I don't know why I said it that way. I know it's up there. There's a (laughs) website. Danger Spaghetti, art and stuff. We we hypothesize. And speaking of extra ways to get to see us, get in contact with us and extra content from us, we're going to be at DragonCon. That's true. DragonCon is right there at the beginning of September in Atlanta, Georgia. We like to go every year that we can. And when we go, we participate in stuff. Yes. So we have a number of panels and activities that we are going to be a part of there. So you can absolutely come see us if you're going to be at DragonCon. And you get to hear us talk about many nerdy things. And feel free to come up and talk to us. We love getting to meet people at DragonCon. Yeah. Hey, what panels are we going to be on? The current schedule has us on five different panel, and one one of them is a panel-ish thing. Mm -hmm. First is, how close could we get to Horizon Zero Dawn, which is talking about the robots and technology of Horizon Zero Dawn, and how likely or possible are we to be able to get to realistic animal robots? Talkin' Paleontology, which is our typical panel with Trevor Valley, that is just an hour of Q&A for paleo questions. One of our favorite things to do. It's just so delightful. Jurassic Park Done Right with our friend Lucas. This one is kind of a sequel almost to last year's talk about Jurassic Park being a bad zoo. Now we're going to see how would you do it correctly. Yeah. We will also be manning the Hands-On Science Power Hour, which is going to be like a room of tables with science activities going on. So less of a fossil stuff. Less of a panel, but it'll still be a ton of fun, and you can come interact with a whole bunch of cool science things. Good for kids and families. Absolutely. And then finally, and absolutely not least, Science versus Movies. So excited. One of our favorite panels at the entire con. We were on Science versus Movies a couple of years ago, and it was so much fun. Uh, Very excited to be back on it. So if you want to see us have to painfully describe why the science in bad movies is actually accurate Uh when you think of it the right way, (laughs) come see that one. (laughs) If you're going to be at Dragon Con, please come say hi. We're looking forward to seeing our regular Dragon Con friends and meeting some new ones and talking about nerdy science stuff. Yeah, at least come by and get a button or something. Yes. (laughs) And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and move on to the first official section, the news. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent science news from recent science research in paleontology, earth science, evolution, all that neat stuff so that we can all stay up to date. What's the news, David? 
I've got some news. That was a very enthusiastic intro to the news. Uh, we got some good news. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm excited. Sometimes we're very subdued about mm-hmm. it. And now it's time for the news. Yes. Uh, Will's very excited about the news. I'm pumped about my news pieces. I'm going to start with the news that is about uh, plants and birds. Okay. Specifically, new insights into early relationships between birds and flowering plants. Hmm. This is research by Yen Wu et al. in Nature Communications. And in the blog post that is associated with this episode, we will be linking to a press release in Eureka Alert via the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Flowering plants are angiosperms. We talked about them in episode 57 and also almost every other episode that we talk about plants. They're extremely abundant. They're the ones that make plant flowers. They're the ones outside your window. Today, flowering plants and birds are very strongly connected ecologically. They rely on each other to do various things. But we don't have a very clear picture of the relationship between these groups back in the Mesozoic. This study looks at some fossils from the Jehol Biota, episode 152, in northeast China, where there have been found not only some of the earliest birds, but also some of the earliest known flowering plants. These are from the early Cretaceous, around 120 million years ago. Previous studies of the fossils in the Jehol Biota have found evidence of relationships between these birds and plants. There have been birds found with gastroliths, so these are stones that birds will swallow to help grind up tough material, often used for plants. But also there are some birds that have been found with seeds and fruit fossils in their guts. There you go. These include a particular well-known early bird named Jeholornis, named for the Jehol biota. Jeholornis has been found with plant remains in its gut. This is a pheasant-sized bird that would have looked weird as a bird because it had teeth, it had a long bony tail, retaining a lot of those early features that birds ultimately lost. This study revisits the guts of Jehalornis to see what else they might find in there, and reports in addition to these previous finds of seeds and fruit, evidence of leaf-eating in these birds. Now, if you're picturing uh, gut contents with, like, leaf impressions in them, you are incorrect. That is not, which makes sense, that's not how a leaf would end up in there. Yeah, yeah, you're not swallowing the leaves uh, whole and nice and pristine. Yes. However... One thing that paleontologists rely on quite a bit is that leaf tissue is full of these microscopic silica structures called phytoliths that exist inside and between the cells. These we can find in fossils. So the researchers took samples of gut contents from these fossils, treated them with enough acid and chemicals to leave only phytoliths behind. (laughs) That's all that will survive this treatment is phytoliths. Harsh. (laughs) That's how you got to get them. And found hundreds of them. Cool. Within the gut contents of Jehalornis, which is our, not only our first direct evidence of this species eating leaves, but the earliest known evidence for any birds eating leaves. Okay. Which adds a new part of plants for us to understand that early birds were eating. They were even able to compare these phytoliths with what different phytoliths look like in different plants and identify that these plants they were eating were likely part of the magnoliid family, 
which includes magnolias, cinnamon, avocado, things like that. This, plus the previous evidence, paints a picture of Jeholornis and potentially other early birds having broad diets of a variety of plant materials. Yeah. And suggests the existence of an, as they put it, arboreal herbivore niche. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The idea of animals going into the trees to eat parts of the tree, to eat fruits and leaves and such, which today is such a, is an extremely obvious thing to picture a bird doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, that, that they do that all the time. There's tons of birds that do that. This is some of our earliest evidence of that kind of habit in birds. Very cool. And it's interesting because, like, birds eating plant material is extremely common nowadays but i don't often think of them as leaf eaters mm-hmm. so it's not something i would have thought to even like look for yeah. and the authors point out that leaves are not a great thing to eat alone yeah they're not necessarily very nutritious so it makes total sense that we've now got multiple different parts of plants as things that these birds were eating yeah yeah yeah. so it, it might have been a, a supplement thing like when nothing else is there can still eat some leaves this also provides important information for early evolution in birds since birds today a lot of herbivorous birds today get a whole lot out of plant food mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they'll eat plant you know nectar and stuff for energy they can even derive some of their color their pigmentation and stuff from plants and flowering plants rely on birds for things like pollination and seed dispersal so in these fossils we're seeing the earliest stages of a relationship that today is inextricable yes it's cool it, the j-hole bi- biota is is so great because we keep getting these new insights that you know are are great from fossil perspective but also just further our understanding of how this animal is likely behaving and living yeah and it's it's really cool that we're getting just a really detailed description of their diet their regular normal diet. there are several things this species ate that's so very awesome one more little note i'll make because i know you like this sort of stuff the researchers also did in addition to this description a morphological analysis of the jaw structure, a morphometric analysis, so a statistical analysis, and compared it with modern birds and found that the structure of the jaw also lines up well with modern herbivorous birds. Cool. So there's all sorts of evidence piling up about the diet of these birds. That's awesome. Yeah. Man. Cool. Well, my first news uh, does not have... Much at all to do with birds, but does have plenty to do with today's episode, because my news is about a new bacillosaurid, a group of extinct whales, that currently is the smallest known. Oh. Yeah. A tiny whale. A tiny whale. Not a thing you often associate with whales. Right? (laughs) This research is by Mohamed Antar et al., in Communications Biology, and the article we'll be linking to in the blog is by... Mragakshi Dixit in Interesting in Engineering. So, whales, as we discussed in our whales episode, originated from terrestrial ancestors, artiodactyls, so cousins of the hoofed mammals, and one of the earliest groups of fully aquatic and successful whale groups was the Bacillosaurids, which includes the famous Bacillosaurus. This group arose in the Eocene, And Bacillosaurus was one of the first 
really big whales growing up to 15 to 20 meters, so, you know, 50 to 60 feet, and nearly six and a half tons. This research is describing a new bacillosaurid that they named Tutsidus rhinensis, which is also from the Eocene. This is the Middle Eocene from Egypt about 41 million years ago, and is a decently preserved partial skeleton. It includes the skull, jaws, the hyoid bone in the throat, and the atlas vertebra. So parts of the head and, and front section. It is one of the oldest from Africa of bacillosaurids, so it is a early, early member and is currently the smallest known. They interpreted it as a small sub-adult, so not quite fully, fully grown potentially, you know, could have gotten a bit older, but not a baby, and was estimated at two and a half meters, or just over eight feet, and probably about 187 kilograms, or 412 pounds. That is a very small, I mean, whale period. Yes. Very small bacillosaurid. Absolutely. Uh, this is smaller than a lot of dolphins today. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, it's like a dolphin-sized whale, if that. And so this is very small. They interpret that this could likely be uh, a thing retained from their ancestors, which mm-hmm. would have been smaller than most bacillosaurids eventually got. They also noted that this could be something related to a warming event that is close in time, the late Lutetian Thermal Maximum, which could have affected the size of this animal. So they're not 100% sure, you know, why it's so small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it may have retained that from its ancestors, or it could have just been a branch that got small. Exactly. Like we see with small toothed whales today. 100%. This does expand the size range known for bacillosaurids. I'll say. We now know they could, there were members much smaller than we would have predicted. <laughs> they went from small porpoise-sized to humpback whale-sized. Yep. Also, it gives us a further insight into Middle Eocene whales and the diversity that was actually present during that period of their evolution. They note that due to the size and after CT scanning the teeth and bones, they were able to get a sense of the growth pattern of this whale and that it seems like it grew very quickly and matured very quickly, which to them suggests a precocial or independent early in life. Right, that they they had to grow fast because they weren't going to be sticking around the parents for a very long time. They were probably taking care of themselves. Interesting. Basically from birth. They also note this will be important for interpreting the early evolution of bacillosaurids. Uh, This one does still have identified back legs still not functional but still notable but it's still that it does have the streamlined body and powerful tail and flippers so it still is fully aquatic but will likely be useful for future studies of the early evolution of bacillosaurids and they also note that it will it is a further bit of evidence and information for some of the hypotheses regarding why and how bacillosaurids became so successful in their in the early aquatic transition of whales because there's been questions and interest into how did this group rise to success how were they able to outcompete the other stem you know the earliest whale ancestors that mm-hmm. were also in the water they noted that this is a little bit of further evidence that this land full on land to sea transition took place in the tropics 
This makes sense nowadays because this is where we see a lot of modern whales migrate to for reproduction and breeding to give birth. And this would have matched the environment that we would see in Egypt 41 million years ago where this whale was found. So it could be that this was also used in a similar way or that it was another hub of activity for early whales. That that similar environment seems to have been important, potentially. And so just a bit further connection to that type of subtropic environment in the whale evolution and life cycle. Very cool. And if I've got my timeline correctly, then that subtropical environment would have been part of the Tethys Sea (laughs) from last episode. It's very cool to, it's always really interesting to learn about an ancient group of organisms that were more similar to the modern group than we realized. In this case, in size range. Yes. The idea that like modern whales, the Bacillosaurids didn't just get huge they also got small Mm -hmm. so you would have had them filling not only big whale neat like sperm whale niche that kind of thing but also dolphins and porpoises yep yeah it is also just a fascinating image in my mind to picture what a small bacillosaurid would have been moving and behaving like yeah like was it moving like a dolphin or was it doing something different because bacillosaurids are actually very oddly shaped whales. They're very long and sinuous. Yes. And did Tutsidas uh, make bubble rings and play with them and <laughs> jump out of the water and do tricks? Right? We may never know. Uh, we, we can only hope. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, hey, I also want to join the fun. So I also have a news that is, it's not about whales, but it is whale adjacent. This is research into a potentially whale-like feeding habit. In an early marine reptile. Cool. This is research by Zichun Fang et al. in the journal BMC Ecology and Evolution. And in the blog post, we will link to a press release in phys.org by Bob Yurka. The early marine reptiles in question in this study belong to a genus called Hupesuchus. Uh, we've mentioned Hupesuchus before when we talked about ichthyosaurs in episode 116. Hupesuchus is not an ichthyosaur, but it is part of the ichthyosaur lineage. So they look kind of ichthyosaur-like. Yes. These lived in the early Triassic, so almost 250 million years ago, very shortly after the Permian extinction, and they were pretty small. The Hupesuchus was only about a meter long, about three feet long. So cute. Quite small, with a long, skinny snout, with no teeth, a kind of shark or dolphin shaped body a little bit of a neck you know not like a plesiosaur but you know a long small body previous research has gone a bit back and forth on what we how we interpret the feeding strategy of this early group of reptiles mm-hmm. this study describes two newly discovered or at least newly described fossil specimens one of which is a whole skeleton and the other is one skull plus parts of the neck, both of which are preserved in such a way that researchers could examine them from the top down. Okay. You have a top view of the skull as opposed to it being preserved, you know, on the side or something, which has not been seen before. Yeah. So we have a, a literal new angle on the skull <laughs> from these specimens. The research performed, and this is another morphometric analysis So they statistically quantified the shapes of the skull and compared them with modern aquatic amniotes to see what similarities they found. 
in the paper, I did find the list of what other animals they compared them to. Nice. And they included crocs, pinnipeds, so seal sea lions, various modern whales, some modern birds, and one platypus. <laughs> I guess to cover all the bases. Yep, yep. Just and, add a little spice. <laughs> in comparison, they found that Hupesuchus's skull has a lot in common with modern baleen whales. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Baleen whales are your big humpbacks, blue whales, right whales that have those, their skulls are so weird in their shape and they use them for filter feeding. They bring in lots and lots of water, filter out all the plankton and small organisms, spit the water back out and swallow just tons upon tons of tiny organisms for their food. Like baleen whales, Hupesuchus appears to have had a variety of features of the jaw that created an enlarged mouth cavity. Okay. The space within the mouth. If you look at whales, if you look at the skeleton of a humpback whale or something, they've got their upper jaw is separated into two pieces, and it's got this big arch that makes the inside of the mouth just a huge maw with extra space for that filter feeding strategy. Yeah, when you see a whale skull, it has a lot of empty space for it on purpose. Yes. Like, that, that it is space that will be filled by filtering and food. We also see there, they, they mentioned in the paper, one example of a plesiosaur from the Cretaceous that is also interpreted as a filter feeder that has some similar features. Hupesuchus has a few features like this, including unfused parts of the upper jaw, as well as slender lower jaws and features that would provide it with a big mouth like baleen whales. Yeah. The authors use this to suggest that it may have been filter feeding, like we see those big whales do today. This is not the first time this has been proposed. They mentioned in the paper that there uh, some researchers suggested early on filter feeding might be a strategy for Hupesuchus, in part because they don't have teeth, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which raises questions about what you're eating. Other researchers argued that filter feeding might not make sense because it has a small, narrow skull and a bit of a neck, like yep, a little yep. bit, not not long, long, but a long-ish neck, which isn't what we think of when we think of things like baleen whales and stuff like that. And still others have pointed at certain other features of the skull and said, well, maybe it was filter feeding anyway. Mm -hmm. This research adds some further support to the idea that it may have been eating like these whales do today. It is always so weird when we find an organism with, like in this case, a very, very unusually shaped face because immediately... You you have you run up against the question of did you have some soft tissue feature that would make this make sense? Right. That we don't have. Yeah. And the authors actually do go a step further and suggest if it was filter feeding, the rest of the body suggests a relatively slow moving animal. Yeah. So not necessarily darting about, and they suggest might have been ram feeding. Mm-hmm which is what's described for a lot of modern baleen whales, which is just you find a pool, or not pool, a school, I suppose, of small organisms to suck, and you just 
run through it. Yeah, just open mouth. Just like a bus mm-hmm. and just go through it. That's how uh, filter feeding sharks are. Mm-hmm. Is that you just open your mouth and then power through and let the water flow over your filter. And they suggest in the paper that it, they suspect it likely had soft tissues mm-hmm. doing a similar job to baleen, helping to filter or expel water while it was feeding this way. Yeah. So I, it's it's an example for me of when we find a weird thing. So often in the fossil record, we find a creature and we go, that's weird. Your whole head, everything that, that all you got going on here is very strange. And therefore, we don't know what you're doing. But then sometimes we find a thing and we go, that's super weird. And it's the same kind of weird mm-hmm. as this modern animal that is also super weird. And so maybe we've got a connection. Which immediately makes me ask the question, did you have a real weird throat? Did you have... Yeah. Did you have a big expandable throat like a lot of filter feeding whales do? Well, and then the other question that the authors posed that makes this really interesting is whales, as you just pointed out, showed up in the Eocene early on, right? 50 million years ago and plus. But filter feeding doesn't seem to have become a popular strategy among whales until way later. Yep. Like closer to the Oligocene. Exactly. Whereas this is a marine reptile... In the early, early Triassic, right after the Permian extinction, one of the earliest members of this lineage that we know of. So it could suggest that these marine reptiles hit on filter feeding much more quickly for some reason. Yes. And that always that always makes me wonder of, does that mean there has been someone in the ocean doing this job? We just haven't found them all mm-hmm. the whole time. You know, like if you go at any point, there is some filter feeder doing a job. Because it's a job, it's a, it's a good way to be if no one else is doing it. Or is it something that comes up every now and then? Yeah. Is is it a weird thing that has actually only shown up a handful of times throughout? Or was it that whales weren't doing it because there were just other things? Like there were sharks yeah. and stuff already doing that mm-hmm. and providing enough competition. And this is an animal living in a post-mass extinction world yeah. where all the niches are open and so you can evolve to do whatever you want. Is there something about the ichthyosaur lineage that was better at it so they got to it faster? Yeah. Oh, so many cool questions. These are all questions. Yep. Well, continuing to speak about whales. Okay. Uh, but to one-up almost everyone potentially, oh. this new fossil whale is another basilosaurid and might be one of or the heaviest animal ever. Uh, yeah, that's the end of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen this headline going around. Yeah. And it's one of those where even if it doesn't hit those upper reaches, it's still going to be real big. <laughs> this research is by Giovanni Bianucci et al. in Nature. And the article is by James Ashworth in Natural in, from the Natural History Museum website. So fossil whales, we can watch as they follow certain trends. And one of the most famous is them reaching gigantic sizes. Yes. To the point where the word whale is a synonym for big things. Exactly. It's like the word mammoth. This also goes along with them getting very long-bodied. And famously, the max body sizes are held by whales today. The baleen whales, which came around fairly recently in whale evolution in the Oligocene. And the blue whale is the tidal holder at 30 meters or 98 feet and up to almost 200 tons. Yes, this is one of those super fun facts that we as paleontologists always like to to bring out there, that with all the giant stuff in the fossil record, the biggest species 
known to have ever lived on the planet is one that's still around today. Yep. Blue whales. And baleen whales weren't the only ones to get big. There are other members of other whale lineages that got, that have gotten in are very big. Mostly we associate gigantism among whales with the active open ocean swimmers. So the ones spending a lot of time out in the what we call pelagic environments. Right. Ramming through clouds of plankton. Mm-hmm. And swimming literally across seas and around the globe. This new species is from the middle Eocene of Peru, which we will be spending a lot of time in Peru during this episode. <laughs> I oh, hear it's lovely. It's a magical place. Lots of whales from Peru. Really cool <laughs> whales. This one being one of the most recent. Peru Cetus, aptly named. Uh, yep, as you'd expect. Colossus. Also as you'd expect. Yep. It could cover itself in plates of <laughs> metal. <laughs> this fossil includes 18 bones including 13 vertebrae, so 13 of the backbones, four ribs, and part of the right hip. All right, so just some bits. Yes. Enough to get an idea of the animal, but we don't have, like, its face, so we don't know what kind of food it would have been intaking, Mm -hmm. and we don't have enough to give, like, a length estimate. But based on other bacillosaurids, we can get some idea of what it would have likely been like if we had everything. Uh, We do have enough of the hip bone to suggest that it had small back legs still. And then here's where things get interesting. Based on the bones they have, they were able to estimate what the total skeletal mass, so just weight of the skeleton, would be. Right. Something with a vertebra this size should have a body about this size. Yes. And right now we're just talking about the bones. So only Mm -hmm. bones. If we had the full skeleton of a bacillosaurus with bones the size of what we have currently, the skeleton should weigh somewhere between... 5.3 5.3 to 7.6 tons. Just the bones. Just the bones, which is the heaviest of any mammal we know of. Mm-hmm. And is about the same weight as an entire African elephant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These bones are extremely big. Much larger than whales from that time, from the Eocene. It outweighs one of its closest cousins, Cynthia Cetus, which is uh, one of its best preserved relatives that they looked at. It outweighs it by... Three and a half times. That's a lot. So this is a massive increase in size for whales of this time and is the highest degree of bone mass increase in whale evolution that we've ever seen. Like sudden jump up in size, which they note is often an adaptation associated with shallow diving. So probably not a deep diver. Yeah. Now here's where they started trying to estimate how big the full animal would be. Which is much trickier, because we don't have the full animal. And like we said, bacillosaurids tend to be a that sort of sinuous, thin shape, whereas a blue whale is is a just gigantic. Yes. There's just so much body mm-hmm. there. So bacillosaurids have an unusual body shape, making it hard to fully interpret. They, you know, they described it as serpentine, and we don't really have a lot of serpentine mammals today mm-hmm. to directly compare to. So using a modern animal, as they put, is going to never be completely accurate. So what they did instead is use something called the skeletal fraction. This is taking the skeletal mass compared to the total body mass and comparing what that ratio is. And what they have found is that this ratio holds pretty true for basically all amniotes. Okay. That if you compare the weight of a skeleton to the total weight of the animal, the ratio will typically be pretty close. Okay. And that's across mammals, reptiles. Mm -hmm. So seems pretty reliable. So if you know the weight of one, you should be able to estimate the weight of the other 
fairly accurately. Okay. Using this, looking at manatees and cetaceans as their comparisons mainly, the weight estimates for Perocetus in total is between, there's quite a bit of a range here, Mm -hmm. 85 to 340 tons. That's, even the small size of that is enormous. Yeah. So this is, as they, and they said that, even at its lightest, still heavier than any land animal ever. Yes. Including all the big sauropod dinosaurs, the yep. long-necked titanosaurs. <laughs> even they are dwarfed by its smallest size. Yeah, and the average of that, like right in the middle of that estimate, is about the size of modern blue whales. Yes. And so it is either one of the largest whales... Or potentially the largest animal we've ever known. Yeah. Depending on where on that estimate it falls. Either way, this likely indicates that whale peak body mass was reached 30 million years earlier than we thought. Yeah. Based on filter feeding whales. We thought it was reached with baleen whales. It seems like it was reached much earlier in Bacillosaurids. It was here that they even noted that Bacillosaurus is notably less heavy based on these evidence, even though it is also very long. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned in the mm-hmm. last news the weight estimate for Bacillosaurus, and I was like, really? Mm-hmm. That is a very small number, that, that much lighter than I would have expected. And it's because of that serpentine body, but it stands out for being a big animal in other ways. Uh, they said even compared to the giant penguins and other proto-whales also found in the region. So, mm-hmm. like, it's, it seems to have been doing something different. The two main reasons that it is notably different than other big whales, is its bones show a condition known as osteosclerosis, which is the cavities inside the bone have been filled with bone. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have hollow spaces in the bone like a lot of other mammal bones do. And they are also pachyostotic, which means that there's extra bone growth on the outside of the bone. So these bones have filled in with bone and gotten thicker on the outside with bone. Right. Which is a very common feature in marine, in in aquatic tetrapods, uh, uh, animals that have moved back into the water. We see this in a lot of those species. Absolutely. Now, they noted this could be pathological because both of these can be caused by diseases. Mm -hmm. But it seems uniform across the bones. So it doesn't seem to be something that's an anomaly. The animals that most commonly are... Looked at for this are manatees, which yep. are famous for using this likely as a form of buoyancy control to keep themselves from floating and keeping them in the water while they graze, which could mean that Perusitas was doing something similar of shallower waters, but staying down in the water. So it might have been feeding in a off the water bottom some way. Yeah. Uh, but due to the parts we're missing from the skeleton, we can't really insinuate what it would have been doing but it has a skeleton more like a manatee than just like other big whales yeah so it is it is probably doing something weird for a a whale of this size particularly this study is one of those great it's a great example of a thing that happens in paleontology a lot where we find a fossil specimen and there's not a really a lot to go on there's enough to start asking some questions but what we do have requires us to start asking a bunch of questions. Yep. But like this, we can't ignore this enormous set of bones that are also kind of weird. It's also, I think, a really good illustration of the trouble that we have when we're estimating the sizes of things Absolutely. in the fossil record. It's so common. You know, people, especially when you're putting together lists online or you're coming up with your your top favorite of something... 
we 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 want to have this what is the biggest of x mm-hmm. what size is this this comes up with dinosaurs a lot and i'm sure that this species will now end up on a bunch of people's lists of like oh the biggest things that have ever been found and maybe the biggest thing ever but the description of the weight estimate procedure is really important uh, to note yes. that you've got well we've got this statistical comparison it works pretty well and because we have that because we have these animals to compare with we can say here's an equation Here's a bunch of factors that might make it lighter than we'd expect. Mm -hmm. And here are some factors that could make it heavier than you might expect. And therefore, this animal could be 100 tons or 300 tons. Yes. Based on our 13 bones, that's about as good as we can get. And I think that it's, it's great to get to discuss that to explain that, you know, yeah, we don't know how big it is. We have a methodology that allows us to make some estimates, but in this case, also there's more to it than just how big it is. So that's even only part of the discussion yes. going on about this creature. Well, especially because there's there's lots of room for error or slight adjustments to have happened. Just in the fact that, like, we've never put a blue whale on a scale. Right. Like, we have to measure the blue whale, measure what its density of its flesh is, and then calculate. We don't have a crane or scale big enough. Right. We've only ever estimated blue whale weight. Yeah. So we are trying to use estimations of very heavy animals and measurements of other animals to estimate an extinct group that was very oddly shaped. For all we know, the bacillus hordes might not follow that skeletal fraction. Mm -hmm. They might have been true outliers and mammals and amniotes it would be weird if they were but they were weird yes so we we it is not a bad idea to use it to look into it but we have to be aware of we don't actually have a living bacillosaurid to measure what its actual anatomy was so is this the record holder for the biggest thing of all time maybe maybe it could be even if it's not it is an indicator that the whale lineage got really big yes way early on which is a bit of a surprise considering that all of you know so many of our most famous giant whales are recent Mm -hmm. and the biggest ones are around today if some whales were getting even close to that size back in the eocene that's a really cool thing to know about whale evolution yeah even at the lowest estimate that means we were halfway to the blue whale's weight yeah in the eocene at the early early stages of whale evolution which is insane. Yeah, a very cool finding. Uh, please go find more. That was one of the last <laughs> notes they made is what we really need is to find more pieces. We so need to find about 200 more bones. We need to start go, going and looking there for more perocetus. <laughs> well, we've talked a whole lot about whales this episode. We have, and we're not done yet. Because <laughs> boy, there's so many more left to go. We will continue to talk about whales and whales with teeth specifically after the break by starting with what's a toothed whale and how are they different and unique from baleen whales? Let's dive right in. The term whale, I think, most often brings to mind the giant filter-feeding whales. Right. Humpback whales, blue whales, right whales, and so on. Absolutely. This is what typically, if you say whale, 
what most people are going to be thinking of and what typically is going to come up first if you, you know, Google it. Mm-hmm. But whales include all of our finned and flippered marine mammals that include whales, dolphins, and their other toothed relatives. Right. Cetaceans. Yes. All are whales. Yes. So they are all whales, even though we have made new names for lots of the other non-filter feeding groups. Right. The toothed whales is one of the two branches of modern cetaceans. You have the mysticetes, the baleen filter feeding whales, and then the odontocetes, the toothed whales. Right. Odontocete conveniently means toothed whale. Yep. And these two groups differ fundamentally in many ways. I can think of one way. Yep. (laughs) In the name, baleen and toothed, you have the fact that filter feeding whales have gotten rid of their teeth completely and now use a hair-like structure of baleen to filter their food. Toothed whales still have teeth and use it to capture food most of the time. They're also notably different in their diversity. There's only about 14 species of baleen whale today in four families. Whilst in toothed whales, we have 10 families at least, and up to 74 species. Much more diverse, much more disparate in their shape, too. We have everything from very large to very small species doing very different things in the way they're surviving and hunting with very different sets of teeth. So much more diversity overall, both in numbers and in shapes and forms on the toothed whale side. There are some major groupings. There are typically three considered superfamilies within the toothed whales. The Phaesteroidea, which are your sperm whales and their cousins. The Ziphoidea, which are beaked whales. And then the Delphinoidea, which include dolphins, but also porpoises and a group called the Monodons, which we'll talk about shortly. Another thing that does set the groups apart is that toothed whales typically are smaller, with most being around a couple meters some getting down to like one and a half and little, little, little tiny whales, little tiny ones, and others getting up to a few meters with a couple of breakout species being like the orca, giant beaked whales and the sperm whale, which can get up to and over 10 meters. Mm-hmm. But they also differ in other anatomical ways that are ones you might not suspect. Their blowholes are different. Huh. Yeah. Mysticetes have two holes in their blowhole. It is nostrils, basically. Toothed whales have just a single opening. Oh, all right. That, that, I did not realize that. I didn't, because I always had that as a fun fact of like, actually, there are two holes. Same. Because it's a nose. Yeah. Uh, Toothed whales have simplified it down to just a single hole. Cool. Yep. Toothed whales also have an odd feature to their skulls. Their skulls are often asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. They're not the same left and right. Mainly around the nares, mainly around the nose area, they have a imbalance. And it's usually in the same direction for most species, which we don't see in filter-feeding whales. Their yeah. skulls are pretty symmetrical. Or indeed in most animals. Yes, exactly. Skulls, typically you keep those symmetrical. Yeah. It's often thought that this is connected to their echolocation. Yeah. Uh, that it is part of housing the features and maybe being able to more accurately receive sound, which we see in like... Owl ears are famous for being asymmetrical to better capture the direction of sound. Which leads us to the other really big thing that's different between the two whales. Toothed whales echolocate. Yeah. They have biosonar. They have this superpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, funnily enough, not the first time we've done an episode about a group of animals where only one of the major subgroups <laughs> echolocates. Yep. <laughs> we, episode 59 uh, was bats. Yes. 
And this is very similar to bats. They put out high-frequency, high-powered sound into their environment and then listen for the echo, the reverberations back off of the stuff in their environment. Literally the same way that submarines and stuff use sonar. Yep. And they can produce high-quality images without any visual information of the environment and the prey around them. This is noted in their anatomy by a structure called the melon. This is that round part on their forehead above the eyes. That sort of bulbous. Yeah. It looks like a melon. It it makes sense. And it is squishy because it is a fatty structure that helps to focus the sound waves. It's basically a sound lens, an Mm -hmm. amplifier or focuser. And in baleen whales, many of them do have a similar fatty structure in that nasal passage area, but it's not functional for echolocation. May represent a vestigial uh, of the ancestral structure. Right. That maybe their ancestors were echolocating. Yes. Or I guess it could be a sh- an ancestral structure that tooth whales repurpose yes. for echolocation. We aren't 100% sure, but baleen whales don't echolocate. Uh, that's a nope. thing that I don't know is common knowledge because we so often say whales echolocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the tooth whales. Baleen whales have great hearing. And they can listen to their environment with incredible accuracy, but and, they can't actually send sound out. Right. And along the, those same lines, baleen whales are also singers. Yes. So they make and lots of noise. They're using that excellent hearing to communicate over long distances. Echolocation is very often being used to find food. Yes. Which baleen whales don't necessarily need their echolocation to find big clouds of plankton. Which does lead to questions of how they're doing that. But that's a whole different episode. That's a different episode. (laughs) Put in your request now for an episode about baleen whales. Toothed whales also very often tend to be sexually dimorphic, with males tending to be larger. Uh, Not always, but that is fairly common in many species. In baleen whales, if there is sexual dimorphism, females tend to be bigger. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So they flip that, that that feature. All of these differences between the two groups has often supported the idea that these are distinct lineages that are truly individual lineages. That there is a toothed whale singular lineage that led to all the ones we have today, and a single baleen whale lineage that led to all the ones we have today. There are some, you know, debate between this date based on the data as to how closely related the two groups are, Mm -hmm. or if there are members within that are actually more closely and maybe it's not a single lineage some evidence has shown that sperm whales might be more closely related to baleen whales Mm. than other toothed whales uh, based on some molecular data but typically they are held as two distinct lineages of related whales then these would be two lineages that emerged from that diversity of early whales that we've discussed in previous discussions precisely as you mentioned with baleen whales being singers Tooth whales are also extremely noisy. Uh, they have tons of calls that they use, whistles and squeaks and cries and grunts. And and clicks and yep. stuff. Very noisy, very talkative, very complex. It has been noted that in bottlenose dolphins, they have identification calls that represent the individual. Right. Like a name. Basically a name. Yeah. That you can, on a on a sonogram, like on a, with our equipment, we can look at them and say, that's this dolphin, that's this dolphin, that's this dolphin, accurately. Yes. And that they, dolphin's name is ah, yep. mm-hmm. and that they, we think this is something used in their social structure to be able to note each other. Um, so I want to apologize to the dolphin community, <laughs> right? For that 
horrible caricature of their language. <laughs> when they rise up, they're uh, yeah, going to use no, this. I, it's going to be, I'm so sorry. <laughs> With some groups that have been studied, like killer whales, we've noted notable, distinct, different calls. Like they've at least 10 different calls have been noted for certain killer whale groups. And this ties into their ability to use echolocation. Now, interestingly, only a few species have actually been fully documented definitely using echolocation. You know, there's only been a few we've been able to study and say, yep, we captured the echolocation, we saw them respond to it. But it is assumed all toothed whales can echolocate since most can produce high-pitched, high-powered clicks. Mm -hmm. And they all seem to have the ability to hear high-frequency clicks. So they should be able to produce it and receive the signal back. But yeah, only a few have actually been witnessed using this ability. A quick overview of the structure of the echolocation organ, just because it's it's weird. <laughs> uh, there is a number of structures in the head around the melon that are important parts to producing the echolocation signals. One of the main parts of the sound genera generator is called the monkey lips and dorsal brucei, or MLDB complex. And the monkey lips is a structure that air is passed through to create the sound. It vibrates the monkey lips. So I assume we're looking at a lip-like structure inside the head. Yeah, it makes me think of, like, vocal cords. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. The sound produced here is then going to be propagated into the water by the melon. So the melon's kind of like the antenna for their echolocation. It's what is actually transmitting it to the water and in a direction. And then they will receive it with their high-frequency hearing which becomes very important as we look at fossil whales because this is one of the only ways we can to try to determine is looking at the fossil ears and seeing does this look like an ear that could receive high-frequency sounds. If it can, we don't know you were echolocating, but you would have been able to hear it if you did. Right. And when we have looked into that, it looks like it actually likely evolved fairly early on in toothed whale evolution. Specifically, the structure we're looking at typically is the cochlea which is hollow spiral-shaped structure in the skull that is an important part of the inner ear and hearing system. It's what converts the sounds into the vibrations into nerve impulses. And certain features of the cochlea will tend to indicate that it would have had the capability to hear high-frequency sounds. We've talked about this with things like uh, studies into dinosaurs and stuff where yes. we can interpret what sort of sounds they were good at hearing. And there have been some interesting findings in that regard. One that I think we mentioned part of this, one of these studies in a news uh, like years back, but they looked at the genes that express in the cochlea, you know, that, that are, are involved in the development of the cochlea in a number of bats and toothed whales and some other mammals and found convergent mutations. Oh yeah, I think we did talk about that. In the genes of the cochlea, that the same kinds of mutations which seem to likely feature for high frequency capability were showing up in different groups separately so that it seems like toothed whale ear bones have evolved with similar mutations as bat ear bones. Yeah, which is very cool. Which is extremely interesting and suggests an extremely high selection pressure toward these specific mutations and these specific features. Another notable thing about toothed whales is that they have big brains, much bigger than the baleen whales compared to body size. They have unusually large brains for mammals. This is a measurement 
that we've talked about before called the encephalization quotient, which is comparing brain mass to body mass and giving a ratio that determines just how big is your brain compared to the rest of your body. And that often associates with higher, you know, what we consider higher cognitive abilities and complex thinking and tasks and behaviors. With toothed whales, it's kind of an interesting mix of features in that they have big brains just by mass. You know, dolphin brains are a, a little bit bigger than our brains at one and a half kilograms. So like hefty brains. The sperm whale has a brain that can be typically around 7.8 kilograms, which along with killer whales have the biggest brains of any animal on the planet right now or any animal that we've ever known to have a brain. Yeah. <laughs> These are the heaviest brains. Congratulations. Yeah. But funnily enough, sperm whale does not have a high encephalization quotient. Right. Because its body is enormous. Because <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> so it actually has a smaller than average encephalization quotient. It's only at 0.02%. While dolphins are at 1.25% typically for bottlenose, which is only slightly lower than ours, which is like one8 Right. And, and one of the reasons why we like the encephalization quotient measure so much is because we humans are score very high in yes. encephalization quotient. Because we are one of the record holders. <laughs> but like, it is interesting because toothed whales have some of the largest brains that have ever existed, potentially the largest, but also some of the lowest and highest encephalization quotients for mammals. Right. Uh, so it's just an odd spread of what their brain features are. Yeah, EQ has come up on the podcast a few times before, and it's always an interesting subject because it seems to be kind of maybe sort of related to cognitive function. Yes. But definitely inconsistent. Yes. And difficult to interpret. So it's always an, it's always an interesting thing to point out and then to also go, all right, and now here's all the nuance and variety yeah. in it. By no means does it mean that is it a one to one for how smart, quote unquote, right. an animal is. But we do see some trends in at least certain kinds of behavior yeah. that we associate with cognitive ability. But to emphasize that lack of cor correlation, baleen whales have some of the lowest encephalization quotients of mammals. Because at some point, it seems that their brain size got unlinked from their body size. As they got yeah. huge and huge, their brain stopped getting bigger and bigger. Well, they're, they're just so big. Mm -hmm. So they have unusual like extremely unusually small brains for their body size but they are by no means unintelligent animals right but tooth whales are famous for these big brains and we see it in the complex social structures they often tend to have some of question why we see such extreme sizes with them a lot tend to lean on echolocation yeah that that's probably it's one of the big driving factors taking a lot of brain power yes like to, literally space in the brain mm -hmm. to make that work to be able to produce and then interpret the signal you get back from echolocation just takes more brain and that this drove larger brains interesting basic overview of of whale evolution we talked about this in the whales episode episode 41 whales and their ancestors evolved from terrestrial animals giving rise to amphibious groups like the Pachycetidae in the Eocene, so 50 to 40 million years ago. In the middle to late Eocene, we see the Bacillosaurids, which we talked about a bunch in the news. This was the first major oceanic group, the fully, fully aquatic and successful group of whales. Later in the Eocene, we see another radiation that leads to the Neocete, or crown group, what we consider whales. And then from there in the Oligocene is when we see both 
the Mysticetes, Baleen Whales, and the Odontocetes, the Toothed Whales, show up. This is when we see a lot of their earliest members. Some of these looked fairly standard. Cymocetidae were pretty normal size, like three meters. This would have actually made them one of the larger whales in the Oligocene. And likely just looked like a dolphinish thing, but had teeth more similar to Bacillosaurids. A little bit more differentiation, a little bit more of that, uh, uh, not yet that simplified peg tooth that most tooth whales have today. Yeah, if you look at whale teeth, tooth whale teeth tend to be, especially unusually for mammals, which are famous for their differentiated teeth, dolphins and tooth whales tend to have very similar simple peg-like teeth across the whole mouth. Yes. Which their ancestors, their early ancestors, didn't. They had more typical mammal-like teeth. Yes, so with some differentiation happening throughout the teeth and some more blade-like teeth, or at least molarish teeth in the back. Mm -hmm. These early toothed whales still had that kind of bacillosaurid tooth set up. That's pretty cool. uh, Which is considered likely brought over from their ancestors. There is some evidence that suggests that already they were echolocating based on their hearing capabilities. Another peculiar aspect, though, is that Cymocetus at least seems like it was probably a suction feeder. Suction feeding is actually super common among tooth whales, and we'll see that show up. And it Hmm. seems like early, early on in their group, they were already inhaling prey with usually using their tongue kind of to piston back water and suck in prey. The way that a lot of fish do. Yep. There were also some more unusual members that had features that we don't see in toothed whales today. One, a genus known as Ankloriza was big. It was almost five meters long, which makes it the largest whale of the Oligocene that we know of. And had a more robust snout, shorter and stronger, likely for more powerful feeding, taking down bigger prey. It also started to show that simplified dentition. The teeth were not as different like in Bacillosaurid, so a little bit more like what we typically expect. Still a little more fancier than today's tooth whales, with some teeth having slightly serrated edges and stuff like that. But the front teeth were a bit procumbent, which is a word we'll use actually a lot this episode. They were sticking out of the mouth, it seems, slightly, or forward at least. And it looks like, based on wear patterns and the uh, stress marks, that they were being used for violent actions, either combat with other individuals or to ram prey, (laughs) to have a battery of teeth at the front of the snout that you could then ram into a prey animal and do damage. And we see that ramming behavior with things like orcas today that will punch their snout into prey animals just to do internal damage, which makes it one of the earliest what we call macrophages, eating big prey of the tooth whale lineage, which is something that we see show up multiple times and is fairly rare nowadays. We see whale diversity in general peak in the Miocene, which is really where a lot of our fossil whales come from. This is true for both the baleen and toothed whales, but this is where we see a lot of iconic fossil toothed whales show up. But even so, it's not until the Pleistocene, so just a few million years ago, that we see most of the modern groups of toothed whales show up. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. We do note some major trends in tooth whale evolution over that time. Expansion of the face and brain case is one of them. Their brains tend to get bigger. Isolation of the ear bones to improve their hearing capability. We also tend to see trends toward either short, robust snouts or long, slender snouts. Yeah, like crocs. Like crocs. (laughs) 
and then throughout their evolution, an increased amount of facial asymmetry, that their skulls become more and more asymmetrical. As I said, most tend to associate it with echolocation. One of the most extreme examples of this today is in the sperm whale, which has by far the most powerful echolocation organ on the planet. And it is so affected their face in asymmetry that their blowhole is skewed off center line. <laughs> it is to the left of their face, also at the tip of the snout, which is just another weird note. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's not above the eyes or right behind the eyes like most toothed whales we think of. It's right up front and on the left. Weird. Because it's been skewed by their echolocation organ. Which leads us nicely into talking about the modern groups of toothed whales. Starting with sperm whales and beaked whales, which are often grouped more closely together. So sperm whale, the famous big blunt-headed whale, and beaked whales, less famous but a fairly successful group. They're actually one of the larger groups around today. Do not look similar at all but have some similarities. They both are suction feeders. They both are deep divers and some of the largest whales around today. Yes. Uh, and definitely on the tooth whale side, which has led to suggestions of them being sister groups to each other. But some modern and some more recent analyses have showed that they aren't that closely related looking at molecular studies. And often sperm whales are considered to be one of the earliest diverging lineages of tooth whales. So one of the first to break off into their own overall group. So they often are considered to be the most divergent, the most different from tooth whales today. So let's talk about them. Once again, they are in the superfamily Feisteroidea, which includes the family Feisteridae, which is the sperm whale, Feister macrocephalus, and the family Kogiidae, which includes the dwarf and pygmy sperm whales are the closest relative to the sperm whale today, but are extremely normal-sized. They're just like dolphin-sized. Right. Which makes them seem weird alongside sperm whales, but that's mostly only because sperm whales are so weird. They're so weird. They are by far the biggest living toothed whale today, getting up to baleen whale sizes. So they are truly huge. They're also majorly sexually dimorphic. Females can reach up to 11 meters in length and 15 tons while mature males can be 16 meters in length and 45 tons. Massive, massive animals. The dwarf and pygmy sperm whales tend to be just 3 meters or so, so typical medium to larger dolphin-sized. The sperm whale's echolocation organ and its nasal complex, that takes up to a quarter and sometimes almost a third of the length of the animal. It is most of the head <laughs> that big boxy mm -hmm. head that that sperm whales are sort of famous for has a sound cannon in it this includes the spermaceti which is kind of their equivalent to the melon but it's slightly different than other tooth whale melons it has spermaceti oil which is what they were famously hunted for but this is different than the oil found in other melons it's more waxy mm-hmm this is in association with something called the junk, which is another complex that runs between the spermaceti and the upper jaws. So it's running under the, that melon-like structure. And together, these form their echolocation system and focuses it along that very long spermaceti to be just a giant sound cannon. They use this because they are typically hunting in very deep waters where there is no light. 
and that is one of their main features. They're extremely deep diving animals, known to dive over a thousand meters down in up to almost an hour. They are typically hunting for squid. That is what they are most famous for. Usually small squid, but they are famously known to go after jumbo squid, colossal squid, giant squid. And when they go after this prey, they catch them with a long skinny jaw that can have 20 to 26 teeth in the lower jaw. There are teeth in the upper jaw, but they typically don't erupt. And so they really only have functional lower teeth, but aren't using those as the main capture mechanism. They are suction feeders. Those are likely just there to help hold the prey once they get it in the mouth. Many older individuals will have the teeth worn down and some never have them erupt and they still do fine. Yeah, so they they, they don't even need those teeth really in some cases. Those teeth seem to be almost vestigial. Hmm. You know, that they are probably helping, but they aren't necessary. That they're suction feeders, which is another thing I did not know about them. I always thought they were... They're eating like a big fish. Yes, I, I always thought they were going down and grabbing with those long jaws. That's what you need to take down a giant squid. Absolutely. How are you going to have an epic battle <laughs> if you're not doing that? Sperm whale fossil records go back to the late Oligocene, suggesting they separated from the rest of tooth whales somewhere between 30 to 20 million years ago. Once again, supporting that they're likely one of the earliest to break away. But most of them do not look like today's sperm whale, unsurprisingly for how weird a whale it is. Most had functional teeth, more powerful jaws, probably were grabbing prey, doing with them. Like a normal toothed whale. Yeah, exactly. And a normal, as we sort of discussed, the image of a quote unquote normal toothed whale that is kind of emerging in this discussion is a dolphin. Is a dolphin. Dolphin Uh, is your maybe maybe like a big dolphin. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to hit something like an average. But yeah, dolphin is kind of the 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 sort of default what we think of. One hundred percent. Most of our fossil sperm whales show up in the Miocene. The oldest for the dwarf and pygmy sperm whales is in the Miocene to Pliocene, so shortly after that. These also were a bit more substantial in the the cranium and jaws than the ones today, who are, I believe, are also suction feeders, even though they are mm. they don't look like a sperm whale that we typically think of. They still are hunting in a fairly similar way. Yeah, yeah. The oldest recognized Feisterids, you know, definitely within the overall group for our sperm whales is early Miocene Otto Feister, about the same size as today's sperm whale. So they got big fairly early on in their lineage and is notable because it still had a full mouth of teeth. The reduction of the upper teeth seems to be something that showed up separately in the two sperm whale groups. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's not something that happened before that split with uh, a pygmy and dwarfin big sperm whale but that they both just said, eh, I don't need these teeth as they were starting to shuck- suction feed because a lot of fossil sperm whales are macro-raptorial, mm-hmm. meaning not only were they eating big prey, like we mentioned earlier, but also had giant teeth for tearing apart big prey. <laughs> Archrofeister had this. They had large, prominent teeth, but by far the most famous one is Liviatin melvilli, which Originally was called Leviathan Melvilli, mm-hmm. but that term was uh, already a name for Mastodon, a junior yeah. synonym for yeah. Mastodon. Le- Leviathan was a genus name proposed for Mastodon. Yes. Also, Mastodon 
was a genus name proposed for mastodons, and they all lost out to mammut, yep, which is yep. the name that came first. <laughs> and mastodon stuck around as a colloquial name, mm-hmm. and leviathan just got dropped completely. Yes. Which is a real shame, because it's an extremely cool genus name. But because of that <laughs> contradiction, they had to change the name. So, leviathan, you say. You could it. also, I think, just say leviathan. Leviathan? Yeah. Yep. Probably. Because that's the original Hebrew for leviathan. Melville-eye. Melville-eye. Uh, because a sperm whale is what Moby Dick is. Yes. This is a notably giant macroraptorial sperm whale. It was alive about 10 million years ago. Its head is three meters long, possibly giving the, to- the full animal a length of 17 meters with incredibly big teeth. These are measurements I had not heard before. These teeth have maximum lengths of 36 centimeters. That's a lot of tooth. And maximum diameters of 12 centimeters. That's a lot of tooth. That's, these are, because like, when we typically think of big teeth, we think of like T-Rex, which is often compared to a banana. Right. This is like a papaya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, that's a very, that's a, that's a. These are long bulky and tooth. just chunky teeth. Yeah. This is something that we see show up in a d- different whale groups of macroraptorial, the meaning taking on large prey often compared to today's orcas, which we will talk about later. This one is notable for being at a time when we also had Megalodon, the largest shark that's ever swam, which also seems to have been a large prey predator. Mm -hmm. And so this was likely a time where we had multiple giant predators going after large prey, both of which seem to sync up with a period of diversification of baleen whales. Right. Meaning they were both likely whale specialists to some degree. The thought of an ocean ecosystem at a time of, as you said, peak diversity of whales, where there were so many whales that there were predators that could specialize in eating whales. Yes. That's a very cool ocean. Yep. It was intense. And then to take a very big step back from that ridiculously awesome version of of a whale, we will go to a much more subdued reasonable reasonable beaked whales still very weird in their own right they sure are but not nearly as scary (laughs) (laughs) beaked whales zithiidae is actually one of the most diverse groups around today there are currently 20 recognized species in six different genera which is still growing today many of these have been recently identified oh interesting Uh, two new species described since the 90s and two ID'd as separate species since 2000. We are still finding and identifying new species of beaked whale. They're a fairly mysterious group. They're mostly found in colder waters and are deep diving whales, more so than most other whales. All beaked whales are known to dive for their food, also typically going after squid. They are all known to live in waters deeper than 200 meters, many of which known to dive down to thousands of meters and be down there for well over an hour. I saw one description that I thought was just fascinating that said they may actually be spending a majority of their time diving, coming up to breathe just so they can dive again. So really you could look at them as a deep sea animal that momentarily returns to the surface to breathe before it goes back to its actual home. Interesting. So it means that we don't get many glimpses of them. Yeah, they they are definitely filed in my head as the most mysterious mm -hmm. of whales. Now, I'm not a whale expert. I could be wrong. That might not be like the general consensus, 
But for me, they are the most mysterious of whales. From everything I was looking up, yeah, they are. Uh, As an overall group goes, especially for such a diverse group, we know a bunch of them, but we don't actually have a lot of info about like their social structure or yeah. their behaviors because we only get glimpses of them at the surface and then they disappear down to where it is really hard for us to follow. And what a fascinating lifestyle that re- I have to imagine really... Whales are some of the few groups of tetrapod animals that could even do that. Yes. But having a big body in part helps to make deeper dives because you have a greater lung capacity, you swim faster, that it's easier to get down to the depths, and then it's easier to stay down there for a long time. Yes. Sperm whales, beaked whales. It's something that air-breathing animals, it's just inaccessible to most of them. Yeah, typically it's not even an option because you have a limited supply. The time it would take you to get down and come back up is longer than you can hold your breath. And very fittingly, these are also some of the largest toothed whales today. That makes sense. Uh, Which is not something I typically thought of them as because most are big but not ridiculously big. Like four meters is the smallest species the pygmy beaked whale okay so a big dolphin a big dolphin and then a lot are a bit bigger than that the largest which is baird's beak whale is 12 meters long oh which that's that's a good size whale that's a big whale yeah <laughs> like, it's it's always a little tricky to refer to a big whale yes exactly because big whales are are <laughs> that's a unimaginably big, big toothed whale. Yes, yes. <laughs> but like, that's that's pretty big. That puts it in the top three of toothed whales today. Yeah. So this is one of the largest toothed whales we have. They also range from being fairly mundane looking, like just looking like a big long dolphin with a slightly more you know notable beak. The nose of a dolphin often is called a beak. Beaked whales just have a more prominent one, so they get that name. Some just look kind of like a dolphin with a slightly weird face. Others have very notably weird structures. One of the most distinctive things for the group is their dentition. They have weird teeth in the fact that they have very few. Hmm. So another group that has reduced Mm -hmm. that dentition. This is another suction feeding group. So they are not using their teeth to capture prey. It seems like for any of them. None of their teeth seem to be prey capture function. Most beaked whales have two pairs of teeth, and typically only one pair erupts is actually outside of the gum, and typically only in males. Huh. And is this the a pair on the bottom jaw? Mm-hmm. Like tusks? Yep. No. Though it varies extremely between the groups. Okay. It goes from being not visible to the outside to being visible on the outside. Yeah, like actually yes. like the reverse of a saber tooth Yep. <laughs> in, in popular image. This means that most females and juveniles have no functional teeth. Yeah. There are some exceptions. Some genus Hyperodon have... Hyperteeth. Hyperteeth. No, actually, they have no exposed teeth, even in males. Huh. They are fully functionally toothless, even though they, if you dissect them, they are in there, but they don't come out. So they have no teeth. Then you have stuff like the shepherd's beaked whale, which have a full set of functional teeth, as well as that sexually dimorphic tusk set that males tend to have. And then in the genus Berardius, both will have those two teeth erupt. So it seems like you have everything from males just having two teeth, both males and females having two teeth, all of you having a lot of teeth, none of you having any teeth. Yeah. very, And they're very diagnostic. You can use the tooth situation to identify a beaked whale down to species typically. That's pretty cool. Yep. What a weird thing to... It's, yeah, I'm, I'm getting the impression that reducing reduction of teeth is a trend in whales 
across the board. Yes. That baleen whales, obviously, have lost their teeth. Sounds like sperm whales have tooth reduction. Beaked whales have tooth reduction. Uh, Also something that we see in pinnipeds, as we mentioned in episode 104, walruses Mm -hmm. have lost their teeth, which a very interesting trend makes total sense for animals that are going towards suction feeding, which walruses are another one of those examples. But this is also one of those cases where it's kind of like, hey, but but we named you toothed whales. And the reason (laughs) we named you. (laughs) You're kind of going against the grain here. And the reason we named you that, as you point out earlier, is because the most iconic group, dolphins, mm-hmm. are very toothed. Very toothy. They are majorly toothy, and they are the most numerous. But when you actually look at most lineages, reducing teeth is fairly common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even in dolphins, which have retained their teeth, the tooth situation is simplified. Yes, it is not like big fancy teeth, typically. Right. It's not like our teeth. Their teeth are very much like crocodilian teeth. Yep. And there are some who have very small teeth. Yes. They have kind of reversed that mammal situation and have very similar teeth, but also tons of teeth. Yes. Now, with most beaked whales, the teeth they do have are just those simple conical ones. Mm -hmm. You know, just little cones, typically set at the tip of the lower jaw. Probably for fighting, being able to jut those teeth out and stab at your your competitors. Not likely for capturing or anything. All the weird ones are in one genus, Mesoplodon, which has 15 species in it. And they have weird tusk teeth. This is where we see a bunch of weird ones, which are still almost completely different when you look at one species to another at times. These are the ones that erupt from the bottom jaw. Outside the mouth, usually are laterally compressed, more blade-like. Still, though, depending on the species, these can be at the tip of the jaw or halfway back on the jaw. Most have a denticle on the tip, likely specifically for inflicting wounds on males based on the scars we see. (laughs) And then you get some extreme ones like Blainville's beaked whale, which has that distinctive upswooping of the lower jaw. Like a a smile. Mm -hmm. It has two bony projections that come up on the side of the face to put the tooth above their head. So they're using their teeth like horns. Yes, exactly. We also note in beaked whales in general, but specifically this group, a notable increase in ossification, so boniness of the skull and the beak specifically, within... Blainville's beaked whale eventually resulting in the densest bone known in any vertebrate. So they just have this hard face with two bony teeth sticking out like horns that evidently they do combat with. And then you have the strap-toothed whale. Its two teeth curve up from the bottom jaw. They're flat straps Mm -hmm. and curve over the top jaw and restrict their ability to open their mouth. Yeah, it holds the... Mouth closed. Also have itty-bitty denticles on the top of those teeth, still using them to fight. So super bizarre group. And then when you look at their fossils, they're just long-nosed dolphins. Huh. Yeah. Very, very standard. Lots of teeth in the mouth. Long, normal-shaped face. Hmm. Just long, long-snouted. Very long-snouted. Okay. Much longer than most dolphins today. Sure. Still beaked. Yes. But... Pretty, pretty standard dolphin looking. Interesting. So the the beakiness is either something that has evolved relatively recently or was around and we haven't found fossils of them, perhaps because they were living down at the bottom of the sea. Absolutely. So it is a little 
bit unsure exactly what their history of behavior is like, but most tend to think that the deep diving suction feeding behavior is a more recent development in this group, since the earlier members seem to more likely function like typical open ocean dolphins that we think of. This includes genus like Mesopocetus, which is a late Miocene whale from Peru, which the Miocene is when we see the first fossils of, of Zifidae show up, and they show up kind of suddenly. So we're likely missing some beginning portion of it, or they diversified very quickly. Mm -hmm. But they kind of just pop in in the early Miocene around 24 million years ago, and then continue to do well through the Miocene. And as I said, are mostly long snouted with functional teeth top and bottom. There are some that I saw that were noted with prominent front teeth, like those precumbent forward facing teeth, which is surprisingly common in fossil whales. Interesting. We'll talk about that more later. Hmm. And so it is thought that they function kind of like dolphins, but it does seem like the extinction of a lot of, of, a lot of those groups roughly co coincides with the radiation of true dolphins. So it may be that true dolphins stepped in, the dolphin-shaped beaked whales started going extinct, and what we have now are the deep diving whales Interesting. that found their niche there. Yeah. So that leads us nicely into dolphins. We will talk about dolphins after the break and their overall group, because it's not just dolphins in the dolphin group. <laughs> yeah. Dolphins are one of the most charismatic animals on the planet. Like it's, They're popular. They are interesting. They are like literally charismatic in that they have just a lot of personality. Dude, charisma. Yeah, like charisma score is very high. <laughs> and they are the most diverse toothed whales around today. But they are not alone in their group. They are in a superfamily called Delphinoidea, which includes three major families. The Delphinidae, which are the oceanic dolphins. What we think of when we say dolphins. The Phocinidae, which are porpoises. And then Monodontidae, which is the narwhal and the beluga. All of these are in the overall dolphin-esque group, the delphinoids. There are also two extinct families, the Kentriodontidae and the Albirionidae. There is also another group of the river dolphins that sometimes are considered to be a sister group to the delphinoids. Hmm. When we look within our delphinoid group, the monodontids and the porpoises tend to be sister groups together. That's how they are interpreted in an overall group called monodontoidia, and they are then sister group to the delphinids, the dolphins. It looks like the overall group likely showed up around early Miocene, 18 million years ago, with porpoises and the monodonts diverging earlier on, still in the Miocene about 15 million years ago. True dolphins, it seems, showed up about 10 million years ago. Albirionidae, they are known from the late Miocene to late Pliocene, 9 to 2 million years ago in the North Pacific Ocean. Often they are considered to likely be early delphinoids, perhaps sister group to one of those river dolphin groups. Medium-sized, two and a half meters, so dolphin porpoise-sized, with skulls very porpoise-esque. So early, early on, very likely they were already looking kind of like porpoises. Very similar story for our other extinct family, the Kentriodontidae. These showed up 
maybe late Oligocene, so they might be a slightly earlier diverging group. They were also fairly small, typically, which is like two meters or less. But both of these groups do show some signs of the use of echolocation. But for our modern groups, let's step back from dolphins and work our way toward them. The monodonts, which include two extremely different looking (laughs) animals. The beluga whale, which is that long, white-bodied, round-faced, no-dorsal-finned whale. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Possibly the cutest whale, which is really saying something for whales. They are so just unreasonably adorable. Mm Mm-hmm. Even in their behavior and and every like just just delightful, and then the narwhal, uh, possibly the weirdest whale, by far one of the strangest whales we have today. <laughs> I have met people, I have witnessed, I think multiple people come to the realization that narwhals aren't made up. Yes, that they actually are. That, a real that animal. actually is a real animal. It's I have seen joke. multiple times people react to that understanding and go, "Wait, really? They're very strange." They are super weird. They are also very different in their behavior. Belugas are fairly standard whale. They're a little bit bigger, you know, three and a half to five and a half meters. So they, mm-hmm. they actually get pretty big, sizable. Big for a dolphin big thing. Big for a dolphin thing. They lack that dorsal fin, which is typically characteristic of most of your dolphin cousins. Most porpoises, most true dolphins have a notable, very shark-esque dorsal mm-hmm. fin on the top of the back. They also are more mobile than your average dolphin cousin. They have unfused neck vertebrae, so very flexible head and neck. And you can see that in mm-hmm. videos of them. They can move their head around a bunch. This is likely an adaptation to maneuver in very shallow waters and ice-filled waters, because yep. they are very Arctic-adapted animals. They have your typical peg-like teeth with a decent mouthful of them, and they are often catching fish, as you would typically expect them to, just grabbing them with their mouth. They also are extremely well known for their echolocation. They have extremely sensitive echolocation, likely for navigating sea ice. Mm-hmm. And there's been some that suggest that they might even be able to detect pockets of air under the ice. Oh, that's cool. So that they can not only move around the ice, but find holes and find emergency air pockets. So they have very, very sensitive echolocation. They are also just extremely noisy. Yes. They are called the canaries of the sea, or sea canary, with a total of over 50 calls known. Yeah, when I did my terrible dolphin impression <laughs> earlier in the episode, I was thinking of belugas. Yes. That was, the, that was the specific tooth whale that I had in mind. They are extremely vocal. They also molt. Huh. They also shed their skin annually. I don't, I don't like that sentence. Yep. yep. I, no, I, I, I had a physical reaction to that. It's like them and walruses. Yeah. Which I guess there might be something to do with arctic cold water yeah yeah but they shed the outer layer of their skin they'll rub it against rocks and just slough off interesting a a whale sheath that's very listen and you don't even have a bunch of little babies eating it nope right off of your body what's what's even it's it's super weird yeah this is not a feature of other toothed whales that's why i haven't mentioned it up till now (laughs) very strange then you have their close cousins the narwhal narwhals which are their own brand of weird Famously, they have that long spiral tusk coming out of the front of the space. Yes. Very unicorn-esque. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go into discussions of narwhals assuming that everybody knows what a narwhal looks like. Right. If you don't, or honestly, even if you think you do, look up a picture of a narwhal. Yes. It's, yeah, very distinctive, spiral, long, thin spiral tusks sticking straight out of the front of the face. And it's coming out of the mouth. Because that's the thing I think often gets confused mm-hmm. is we put it on the forehead in cartoons because we... 
they likely inspired part of the myth of the unicorn. And we have, in reverse, p- given them a unicorn horn. Right. But it's not a horn. It's not a horn. It is front teeth sticking out. Yes. Right through the lip. And specifically, I believe, and I'm sure you're about to mention it, a tooth. A tooth. It is a canine tooth. Their tooth development is very strange. They develop six pairs on the maxilla and two pairs on the lower jaw, the dentary, of dental papillae, which are the beginnings of teeth, mm-hmm. when they're embryos. But typically, only two pairs actually persist into development and become teeth. The canines elongate, and the other two remain vestigial in the jaw. Hmm. So they have... Like a lot of those other toothed whales. Yep. They not are using teeth. Functionally toothless, at least for biting food. They're suction feeders again. In males, the left canine elongates and continues to grow through the maxilla, through the top jawbone, and out the lip, through the skin, becoming that spiral when it spirals to the left. And can become a three meter long tusk out the front of the face. A th- the left canine, which always mm-hmm. once again that asymmetry. Your left canine is a spiral ten foot long horn that comes just straight, just like Wolverine, yep. straight through the skin, just right out there. Females do have the elongated canines, but they don't typically come out of the mouth. Some females will have a small tusk coming out. Hmm. Sometimes males both will develop into tusks. I saw it noted that double tuskers, as they are called, are not rare. Huh. That's It's not the norm, but it also is not like once in a blue moon. It's No. Sometimes you just go, yep, that one's got two. And now we have a, and a backup. Yep. Ooh. And you mm. just got two very long spiral tusks. I don't know if the right one spirals left to, or right. Yeah, I didn't yeah, find yeah. that mentioned. <laughs> Do you have, are they spiraling the same way or are they spiraling in opposite? they spiral opposite. That would make but sense. But then again, I, narwhals. Yep. <laughs> you're very strange. There has been tons of discussion as to the purpose of this tusk. We talked about this a lot in the tusks episode. We sure did. That was episode 107. So go there for more discussion. But typically it is thought to be a sexual display structure. Not likely for combat, but for showing off. Yep. They are tending to feed on fish and squid. They are fairly deep divers, which... Once again, syncs up with other suction-feeding whales. I haven't heard any discussion of exactly what that connection might be as to why diving for deep prey may lead to suction-feeding, but it does seem to be a trend. And are typically found in cold northern waters. So fairly narrow range, fairly narrow range of food as well. And similar to belugas. Mm -hmm. That's where the same sort of region of the world. Another thing that, of course, is famous about belugas uh, alongside... A lot of other species we're going to talk about in the coming discussion is that social behavior and intelligence and stuff. And the reason that I think of it specifically with belugas is because on a pretty regular basis, you'll see videos online Mm -hmm. of specifically it'll be like people in some coastal like Scandinavian place where a beluga just comes up to them and interacts with them. Yes. Just out in the ocean, which I think both is a cool demonstration of what belugas are capable of and also leads to the misconception that that's how wild belugas act. Yes. Like those videos are, as far as I understand, typically a beluga mm-hmm. that is probably a trained beluga. Yeah. Yeah. Like a beluga that was trained by people and then I think escaped or something. Well, and there's like, lots or was of released release programs. Like there's lots of stories of that with dolphins and orcas mm-hmm. and belugas of where they will be in a rescue program. 
get released and now have all these new behaviors that we will then see them teaching to other individuals. Right. Like there, there'll be videos of Beluga. I've seen one that goes around every now and then of someone like dropped their camera mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into the water and the Beluga went and picked it up and gave it back to yes. them. And it'll often go out with captions of people who are like, look at how cool this, these, these animals are. And it's like, yeah, that's not a wild animal behavior. That, that's an that, individual. You were taught to do yeah. that. And yes, this is a fairly common thing with a lot of toothed whales. I'm, one of my favorites I heard was a, a dolphin that was released and had learned some of the tricks, like tail dancing, which is not a typical dolphin behavior. Right. They that, can, you know, we teach them that dance on the top of the water and that we started seeing failed tail dancing attempts by wild dolphins after that individual was released mm-hmm. as it was continuing to do it and almost teaching it to other dolphins, right. which is pretty cool. Now, when we look at monodont fossils, uh, they're fairly scarce. Likely, they showed up between 15 to 10 million years ago and are mostly found in lower latitude warm waters. Hmm. So they are not actually typically found in the northern Arctic waters that they're known for today, which could mean that that might be a recent shift Mm -hmm. that evolutionarily they were, you know, subtropical, near tropical and then something shifted them further north. Yeah, I also don't know what the fossil record of northern high-latitude coastal waters is like. Absolutely. It may be that there's just fewer accessible fossil yes, sites up there. We right? just might not have been looking in the right areas as often as we are in nice, warm Baja, California. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is where one fossil, uh, a broad-headed beluga-like specimen came from in the late Miocene and is probably the earliest monodontid we know of. Mm-hmm. This is the genus Denebola. And then the only other one I found mentioned was a genus called Bohaskaya, which was noted as the only monodontid from the Atlantic coast. Oh, all right. So So a a scarce fossil record for a weird modern group, like so often happens with weird modern groups. Yep. And then the only mentioning I found of narwhal fossils was fragments from the Pleistocene. And that's it. Quote, fragments from the Pleistocene. That was the only (laughs) mentioning I found. There is, however, an extinct group of monodontids, the Odobenocetops, which we also talked about in the Tusk episode. Yeah. This is the walrus whale. Yes. That we mentioned there. That's what it's named. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Odobenets. Walrus. These are from the late Miocene and early Pliocene of Peru. Lots of fossil whales from Peru. We have some decent remains from at least a couple of species. It is considered likely sister group to the other monodontids. So probably in the overall super family, but sister to our other two, our beluga and narwhal. They tend to be between three to four meters. So decently sized with a short rounded blunt face with two tusks coming out either side, one notably longer than the other. These were pointing backwards, probably held parallel to the body while swimming. The right tusks in males was very long, up to a meter in length, while the left was often less than a foot long, with only a few centimeters actually sticking out. And like the narwhal and females, both tusks were seem to have been small. We do seem to have evidence of sexual dimorphism in these fossils. Yeah. So our ancient narwhal-like whale is... Weird for very similar reasons as modern narwhals, but at the same time doing something completely different. Yes, and likely, from what we can tell, the tusks are convergently evolved, that they are separate origins. Yeah. 
They also note here that the tusk seems to probably be very fragile, so not likely used for actual combat, but just display. And its face is very similar to walruses, not just in having two tusks that face kind of in the reverse direction, but also in having a flat and arched snout with a deepened palate there, which we see in walruses that they use for very sensitive, powerful lips and suction, a powerful suctioned tongue to suck up clams and stuff. Yes, exactly. It looks like this whale was very probably doing a similar thing. And based on the vascularization and indications for musculature, probably also had a strong lip that may have also had whiskers just based on how similar it is. And is likely that while it was feeding, it just put its face down on the ground. It would have been at like a 45 degree angle with its tusk dragging the ground and its eyes are positioned. So it would have still been able to see forward whilst on the ground like that. Like a walrus. Like a walrus. And to continue it being a weird whale, it seems like its echolocation ability, if it was present, is either absent or reduced depending on which species you look at. Hmm. So it may not have been echolocating. It might be behaving in a fully different way than other toothed whales that we think of. Interesting. It makes me wonder if a suction feeding lifestyle, because obviously we have reduction of teeth associated Mm -hmm. with suction feeding. Which is the case here as well. Is that reduction of teeth and deprioritizing the importance of the teeth for feeding something that allows for the evolution of extremely exaggerated, ridiculous teeth. Yes, yes. Which we see in both walruses and these whales. Yeah, if I don't need this to feed. And indeed also in the beaked whales, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where we see that combination of reduction of teeth, except for these weird ones. Yeah, if I'm not using this to feed, I might as well use it for something else kind of idea. And absolutely, that makes sense to me. But then on that note, we will now move into a much more moderate group. The porpoises. Porpoises are decently diverse today. There are three main genera with seven to eight species. I have seen, like when I was comparing it on Wikipedia, there are some different distributions that might have more genera and slightly different groupings, but less than 10 species. All are notably small for toothed whales. That's one of the things porpoises are famous for. They tend to be between one and a half and two and a half meters. So most are in the same size range as most humans. They are pretty small. They also lack that characteristic beak, that long rostrum snout of most other toothed whales, and don't have the conical teeth. They have spatulate, flattened teeth, which is by far the, the thing I see most often referenced for being the, the one of the big ways to tell them apart from dolphins. But they have that lack of beak and weird teeth and tend to be smaller, but otherwise typically behave a lot like you would expect a dolphin to with their catching fish with th- those teeth, swimming often in open waters. There are some exceptions. There is the finless porpoise, which is sometimes called the Yangtze finless porpoise, which is a river porpoise in China. And as the name suggests doesn't have a dorsal fin. It has a bump there, but no dorsal fin. They also include the vaquita, which is found in the Gulf of California and is currently the rarest whale alive today, with around 50 to 70 individuals remaining. Yeah, the, the reason, sadly, that I know what a vaquita is, is because they are famously endangered. Extremely so. One thing that 
is interesting in that them, them being small is they seem to be pediomorphic. They seem to have juvenile characteristics that we see in other groups of toothed whales that they literally are more like baby dolphins than adult dolphins. We see this in the proportions of the skull, which resembles juvenile species of other toothed whales, both in the shortening of the beak and notable roundness of the brain case. There's even delayed fusion of the skull noted. So they are a group that seems to embody much more juvenile traits of other toothed whales. Yeah, they've retained a lot of those ancestrally juvenile traits, which makes it sound like they are in some ways specialized Mm -hmm. for being the way that a porpoise is. Yes. And so they they are not just tiny body dolphins. They are basically a group of almost baby dolphins, (laughs) which is very interesting. We've talked about this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of groups that we see these kinds of trends in of holding on to juvenile features. One of the most famous lineages that has done this is our lineage. Yep. Big round skull. (laughs) Humans, uh, us and our related hominin species, have a lot in common with juveniles of other ape species. Yes, indeed. They also have some notable features like ridges that are ahead of the dorsal fin. These, These bumps that are even noted in porpoises where the fin is missing. They don't seem to show a lot of cooperative behavior, at least not group feeding behavior, which is something a lot of dolphins are famous for. And their fossil record extends back to the beginning of the overall dolphin group, back into the late Miocene and into the Pliocene, while all of the modern purposes evolved within the last few million years. So very recent for all of our recognizable groups today. Their fossil record is more notable, showing them as one of the earliest delphinoid a genus known as Saluma ficina, which is often considered our currently oldest delphinoid, and appears around the same time as some of the first true dolphins. So this is right at the beginning of the group. But they also include some otter individuals. The genus Semirostrum is a Pliocene porpoise with a really long lower jaw that has an underbite sticking out past the top jaw, and only example of this sort of structure known in mammals. We see things like birds, like skimmer birds have this. Mm-hmm. And it's thought they might have been doing the same thing. A CT scan of the jaw showed it was likely highly sensitive with lots of nerve canals. So they think it probably was using its jaw to probe in the sediment for prey and to either stir them up or scoop them up and grab them. And it was likely a slower moving porpoise in, in like coastal habitats just skimming through the sediment. But the bulk is in the dolphins group. This is this is where we see most of our notable uh, members today and in the fossil record. The true dolphins are the most diverse, with 17 genera and 37 recognized species. There are a few major groups that are often set aside into things like the blunt-headed or small-toothed dolphins, which have a more rounded face like the beluga or porpoises. You have ones called the piebald dolphins, which includes some some like the right whale dolphins, which have no dorsal fin. And then the bottlenose dolphins, which is the largest group. It includes the common dolphin, which is the most abundant whale today with a population, according to Wikipedia, of about 6 million. And the famous bottlenose dolphins, which are many different species of terciops. And then on top of all that, the orca. A true dolphin. A true dolphin. The biggest member by far, most dolphins tend to be between one and a half and four and a half meters in length, with some being smaller. 
The spinner dolphin is less than a meter and a half, so they're very tiny. And the largest being the orca, the killer whale, which can reach up to almost 10 meters. Nine and a half is what I kept seeing. Most dolphins have that external beak, but the blunt-headed members and the orca have that rounded face. They tend to have those simplified peg teeth. Even though there are some, the pilot whales are noted as suction feeders, so they are still suction feeders even within this group. Most have that dorsal fin. The right whale dolphins lack it. The humpback dolphins uh, have a hump where the fin would be, but not an actual fin. But by far one of the things they're most famous for is they are all social. There is some degree of social behavior and even social hunting very, very typically in every single dolphin species. This can range from a few individuals to groups of hundreds. So it just depends on which dolphin you're looking at as to how many you'll be dealing with, or even sometimes which population. Mm -hmm. Different populations will show very different behaviors. This is especially famous in bottlenose dolphins and orcas, which we'll talk about here in a second. But there are different groups of bottlenose dolphins that show hunting behaviors not seen in any other group. Famous ones like Shark Bay in Western Australia will carry sponges that are thought to let them probe into rocky and sandy areas to flush out prey while protecting their snout from being damaged or attacked. On the Atlantic side of Florida, here in the USA, there are dolphins known to swim in that circle around fish and make the mud rings. Mm -hmm. So the fish leap out so they can catch them. In North Carolina, once again here in USA, are where the dolphins have learned to chase fish up onto the bank and then temporarily beach themselves to pick them off the muddy slopes and then slide back into the water. Uh, I believe they will also, they've also been noted to hit the fish up on the bank with their tail and then swim up there. Mm -hmm. So incredibly complex behavior across the groups and within species. But by far one of the most notably divergent behaviors in the group overall is the killer whale. Orcas, Orcanus orca, there's also the false killer whale, which is pseudo-orca, which is a member of the blunt-headed whales. Both are unique for being the only whales today to take on mammalian prey. True orcas are also the largest member of the dolphins by far, with males reaching up to almost 10 meters, like 9 meters, and almost 8 meters in females. They are by far one of the ocean's top predators, above basically every other predator you can list in the ocean. They either aren't bothered by them, or hunt them. <laughs> so they are extremely often use examples of the idea of an apex predator. They hunt with some very prominent teeth compared to other dolphins, larger and more robust than your typical dolphin teeth that interlock with the top and bottom jaws so that they make a strong gripping bite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you follow us on social media, <laughs> our teaser image for this episode is orca teeth. Yes. Over 140 species have been noted as prey items for killer whales. This includes typical things like squids and fish, both bony and cartilaginous, seabirds and penguins, and then famously marine mammals. They hunt all of these with a unique feeding behavior among dolphins as well, which is a grip and tear, as it's called, Mm -hmm. what they call shark-like feeding behavior, where they bite and then shake their head to rip pieces off to then eat it. Most dolphins tend to swallow food whole. And they tend to eat very small food. Yes. This is a unique thing among both the false and true killer whales. When it comes to mammals, this is what sets them apart. 
There have been at least 50 different mammal species that have been noted as food items. This includes seals and their cousins, dugongs and, and manatee cousins, mm-hmm. sirenians. They also noted that rarely mustelids and sometimes ungulates. Yep. Because they've been noted to take moose before. Yep. <laughs> Which, like, it not only hoofed mammals. Yes. It's not, it not that orcas just went, yeah, we're going to eat an occasional ungulate. Moose. Yep. It's like the orcas got in a pod and they got <laughs> and they were like, let's let's impress people by taking down a hoof down, but let's really impress people. Yep. yep. Moose. That's a preposterous thing for a whale to eat. Yep. I I heard this fun fact, Moose, about how deep you can dive. That's that's pretty intense. You want to know someone else that's intense? <laughs> but probably the most notable is that they are whale hunters. This is where the term killer whale comes from. Mm-hmm. These whales specialize in taking down other whales, yeah, they, at least sometimes. They have particular hunting strategies mm-hmm. that they will use to hunt whales. This typically will include other toothed whales, dolphins and porpoises. Uh, that's all we see the false killer whales go after. But true orcas will also take down baleen whales, usually calves, yep. and most notably the minke and gray whale, which are smaller members of the baleen whale families but have been known to go after an adult and have even been known to go after young of blue whales. Yes. So no one is fully no, safe. No one's safe. <laughs> nope. <laughs> From orcas. But this is not seen in all orca groups. Mm-hmm. Orca groups are very notably different. They are all currently one species. Right. But they are cosmopolitan. They are found globally. Yeah, you mentioned earlier when you were listing what sort of animals mm-hmm. they eat. You mentioned a couple of unique, interesting ones. You mentioned moose, mm-hmm. and you mentioned penguins. Yep. And those live on opposite sides of the world. Yes. They, <laughs> the you orcas... can't eat those in the same meal. No, you cannot. <laughs> those are not served at the same buffet. Yeah. Orcas are fully unusual compared to most of the other groups we've talked about. And, the and, fact and that indeed, most animals in the world. Absolutely. They are fully global. Yeah. Pole to pole, every ocean. All around the world. And when we look at them, we see some distinct groups that are unusually strict in the feeding trends they follow. In the northeastern Pacific, there are three distinct groups that you'll often see noted. Transients, or bigs, these are the mammal hunting specialists. Mm -hmm. Most of which have never been observed to hunt fish at all. Interesting. They are mammal specialists. Squid beaks have been found in their stomachs, but we've never seen them hunting fish. Residents which are fish-eating specialists, which have never been noted to hunt mammals. And then offshores, which are fish-eating specialists that specialize in sharks. Huh. Especially the Pacific sleeper shark. And we note this in the fact that their teeth show more wear for biting through their tough, shark-denticled skin. Oh, interesting. Their sandpaper skin wears their teeth down more quickly. So we're seeing... We often talk about niche partitioning. Mm -hmm. Different... Species within a community specializing in different things. This is one species, Mm -hmm. as far as we can tell. And not only just one species, but one community. Yes. All living in the same basic region of the world with different groups within the species that are specializing in different things and therefore not competing with each other. Absolutely. And it doesn't stop there. When we move to the other side of the planet in the Antarctic, we see five forms that are... Morphologically, you can identify them. They have mm-hmm. distinguishing characteristics, and many have feeding specializations. These are less fun named. There's type A, 
which is an open water ma- mammal hunter, typically for minke whales. Type B1, which feeds on pinnipeds. Seals and sea lions. On the loose pack ice. So mm-hmm. they're the ones like making waves to wash seals off the ice and stuff. Yep. Type B2, which is penguin specialist and maybe fish as well. And so these are the ones that you see like tipping the ice flows. To <laughs> knock all the penguins yep. off. Mm-hmm. Type C, which is apparently a fish feeder is found in the, the packed ice areas and is often much smaller, like half the size of type A. And then there was a type D listed, but I didn't find a description for it. But there is a fifth they, group. They refuse to tell yes, us. Yes, yes. We... They, they subsist just on the fear <laughs> of the other animals in the ocean. Why do you want to know? You a cop? <laughs> Why is it your business who we eat? We say, hey, this group of orcas, what is it that you're eating? And they're like, stick around and find out. <laughs> come a little closer. We'll tell you all come about on, it. Come on over here. Come yep. on over Researchers. Lean in, lean in real close. Scientists. That's what we're specialized in. Curious individuals. <laughs> These different groups, it is unclear how truly distinct they are. Currently, it's one species. The groups do overlap, but they seem to maintain social and reproductive isolation. Yep. So even though they are over top of each other, their behavior seems to be enough for them to not associate with right. the other groups, which has led to... Behavioral differences, obviously. Morphological differences. You can tell the difference between, you know, it's like we have different morphotypes in different regions of some animals. But also, there are genetic distinctions. Yeah. So, some have suggested that maybe these would be valid for subspecies. Also, some have considered we might be witnessing the speciation of orcas. Yeah. That we might be in the process of orcas splitting up into different species strictly through feeding habits, not through isolation, but just because they won't mate with the other groups. (laughs) I've even seen uh, researchers use the term cultures for these different groups, relating it to the way that we will see this even with our own species, where you have lots of people sharing spaces, but we've got distinct little cultural groups Mm -hmm. that we tend to stick with, and that tends to be not so much that we're creating subspecies or anything, no. but that you do get sort of pockets of your community. I've seen some researchers suggest something perhaps similar with orcas. Especially because, like us, orcas and dolphins in general are not born knowing these behaviors. They have to learn them. They, they have to be taught. One of the things that is extremely famous, dolphins across the board, and orcas often in particular, this learning behavior. You were mentioning before dolphins going back to the ocean and teaching other dolphins. There are tons of stories of orca groups seeming to learn. One orca learns a thing, and then before long, all the orcas are doing it. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be this very complex learning and teaching and choosing behavior. Yes. So much so that it, it, when you were, when we were uh, mentioning the niche partitioning and how weird it is to have all these different members of effectively the same species living in the same place, but still doing different things. I thought to myself when describing it, I would be only half surprised to learn that the different groups of orcas have intentionally selected Mm -hmm. to avoid each other. Yeah. That this group went, you know what, every, we all had a little community, <laughs> and we said, you know what, we're just going to hunt sharks, 
And and not even in the facetious way that we were just talking about yes. b- before of like, oh, all the whales got together. But no, that like literally yes. you could have a group of orcas that get together and go, yeah, this is what we're going to be hunting. Well, and I would be fascinated to know, and I'm sure there's been some research on this, but I didn't stumble across it, uh, of what other things are different. Mm-hmm. Are their calls different? Do they tend to be slightly different frequencies do they have slightly different mating behaviors? Yeah. You know? Are they raising uh, young in slightly different yes. ways? So could it be very similar to us having different groups, but more having different global cultures of, it's not so much that we won't interact because we refuse to, but that you speak a different language than me. Right. And so I, it will be hard to raise a family together <laughs> when I don't know what you're saying and have orcas gotten close to that to where it's it's not so much that they couldn't breed, but when you try to show interest in me, I'm just confused. Right. So why are you doing that? Behaviorally. Yes. It's, or they're like, what, do you eat seals? Mm-hmm. Gross. Yes, exactly. I'm going to stick with my fish-eating colleagues. Is Thank you very much. Just that when if we try to bond, we just can't hang out because we want to do different things. Right. It's, they're very behaviorally yeah. complex, and it raises all sorts of fascinating questions about their different groups. Orca as a group is very fascinating within dolphins, but... The evolution of orcas is really hard to look into because we do not have many fossil members. Hmm. There is only one confirmed fossil member of the genus Orcanus that we have been able to identify diagnostically as a fossil orca. There are other members of the overall orca lineage, but there is Orcanus sitoniensis, which is currently our only extinct species of killer whale and is known from one specimen of a fairly complete Skeleton. Interesting. That's it. Clearly orcas are burying yes, yes. their fallen in the deep. Yes, absolutely. Like it's their version of a burial at sea. And mm-hmm, they swim mm-hmm. out to the deep and they drop them down to the, the deep where we never find them. Next to the beaked whales. Yes, absolutely. That's who that's who takes that, them down. That part was that's I'm saying jokingly, which I now feel the need to specify right? when talking about orcas. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, that part I don't think is true. But you know what? I, who knows? All right. This is a species from the Pliocene of Tuscany, Italy. We do have other members of the group, but that's about all the fossil conversation we can have on orcas. But one of the main aspects of orcas that gets studied a lot is their ecological role of a large macro-raptorial, macro-predatory toothed whale, which, as we mentioned earlier, has shown up. Mm -hmm. The big macro-raptorial sperm whales are often compared to likely being very big orcas, effectively. Sure, sure. And uh, bacillosaurids, Mm -hmm. as we mentioned before, are also interpreted that way. But they are the only ones, just two species today doing it, and we have only seen it show up a few other times. There hasn't been like a lineage that has consistently done this. So it will be looked into as to when did this orca-esque feeding behavior show up? And there are a couple of things that we note, both in true orcas and the false killer whale, that macroreptorial, big teeth for capturing big prey, and that grip and tear feeding style, which is usually associated with a shorter snout. Mm -hmm. And so it will often be looked into when do we see these features to try to help us answer when were there whales filling this niche and likely hunting other whales? How often and when has that been the case on planet Earth and who's been filling that role? Our fossil orca, 
does show some of those features, though less so than today's Orca. So it seems like it was intermediate. So maybe on the way to evolving to the fully whale hunting features that we have today, it was a bit smaller bodied, three and a half meters. So about half the size of the day's Orca. Seemed like it likely had less of a powerful bite. Its rostrum was not quite as robust and short. It was a bit longer and narrow. So not as effective for grip and tear feeding. One of the other trends we see with this type of feeding is lower tooth count. And this one has teeth within the range of orcas, but on the upper end. So it doesn't have as low as we see later. And its wear patterns show that it was probably still eating fish. So they hadn't seemed to have evolved that mammal hunting behavior yet. And this is important because one of the questions that has come up with orcas is whether or not their hunting of whales and their ancestors hunting of whales is a part of what drove baleen whales to get so big. Mm-hmm. And this seems to say that based on the timing, probably not. Yeah. Because we didn't have, it seems, fully macroraptorial orcas and dolphins at the time when we saw a lot of that size increase happening. Which now leaves us with the weirdest dolphins, river dolphins. This is our last group and is by far the, the most convoluted. Because river dolphins include different species from different genera that whose grouping is under debate or has been under debate quite a bit. There are actually a number of toothed whales that have freshwater or river populations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the porpoises earlier. Yeah. Also, we've got our moose hunting orcas. Yep, yep. There are a couple of true dolphins and porpoises, the Yangtze finless porpoise, the Irrawaddy dolphin, which is found in freshwater areas in Southern Asia, has populations at least. Mm-hmm. And then a South American freshwater dolphin known as the Tokuxi, which is found in similar areas as one of the typically recognized river dolphins. There are four species often called river dolphins, most of which are fully river bound. All of their members are in freshwater rivers. The genus Platanista, which includes the South Asian river dolphins. Typically, you'll see the Ganges river dolphin mentioned. There is another, the Indus river dolphin. These have either been considered separate species or subspecies. Genus Aenea, which is the Amazonian river dolphin, probably the most famous of the river dolphins. The one I think of. There's three subspecies throughout their range. This is also known as the Boto or Bato. And then genus Pontoporia, which is often called the La Plata dolphin or Franciscana, is found in Brazil and Uruguay and Argentina, likely closely related to the Botos, the Amazonian river dolphin. And then finally, genus Lapotes, which is the Yangtze River Dolphin, or the Baiges, which has recently gone extinct. In 2002, the last confirmed individual died out, which leads to the note of these are some of the most threatened dolphins. This is another group that that is a famous thing Mm -hmm. about. Whales in general are not doing great. Not doing great in our modern world that is tough for big animals. But there are a, a handful of dolphins specifically, like we mentioned the vaquita and yeah, river dolphins as yes. well. Especially because they are only found in South America and Asia. Mm-hmm. They, they're not found anywhere else, which is an unusual feature. Yeah. Because there's rivers all over the world and dolphins all over the world. But only these two areas have consistently seemed to uh, uh, promote true river dolphins. With those four species of river dolphins, we see... Some very common features show up, adaptations for river environments. One simple one is that they tend to have large flippers and flexible bodies for maneuvering 
through tighter spaces and shallower water. Makes sense. Many of them will often swim sideways with one flipper dragging the bottom. Yeah. Uh, to better denote their position in it, it seems. They all have relatively small eyes, reduced eyes, probably because of the silty nature of rivers. Even though many of them live in clear water at times, they are more likely to encounter murky water. And by this effect, they all have very notably advanced echolocation yes. capabilities. Make up for that lack of, even if their vision is not impaired, yes. just the lack of ability to see Absolutely. in those waters. And most still have pretty good vision Particularly the Ganges River Dolphin's eyes are so poor they lack crystalline lenses. <laughs> so they are functionally blind. Same. Yep. yep. <laughs> it was saying that they might be able to perceive light and dark, but mm-hmm. they are basically fully echolocating to get around. And many of them are noted to are noticed to nod their heads as they swim, likely to get a more full sweep of their echolocation yeah. to get a more detailed image of everything they might be encountering. Both of those features apply heavily to ones that live in rivers that flood forests where they might be maneuvering through trees yep. like the Amazon is famous to do. They often tend to have reduced dorsal fins with just humps in that place instead of an actual fin and all have long rostra, long snouts compared to other dolphins. Yes. Long skinny snouts, much more like a gharial than your typical dolphin. Yes. Now we're now we're being shaped a bit more like an ichthyosaur. Yes. Or like some of those ancient beaked whales mm-hmm. you were talking about. Absolutely. Probably this is considered as an adaptation to catch fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've all heard my soapbox on interpreting sure, sure. diet from all summer long. <laughs> we talked about crocs. <laughs> I could also see it being, especially in a situation like that, potentially useful for getting in between. Yes. Tree roots or nooks and crannies, Mm -hmm. things like that. Absolutely. Uh, Some of them have been noted to maybe go into the sediment with those longer uh, uh, snouts to get things hiding in the mud. The botos are unique for being one of the only modern cetaceans with differentiated dentition, meaning different types of teeth in the mouth. Yeah, they've gone back. Mm -hmm. The, 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 The dolphin lineage lost that differentiation, and then this is a group that went, actually, let's do some of that again. Yes. Which I always find funny noting here because then we have things like the beaked whales and the narwhals where it's like, well, you have different teeth, but... Right, but... Uh, but but two, like two different, two different teeth. teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and and the audience yes. is not being present for what just happened. Will, you said two different teeth, like the number two. Yep. <laughs> I was referring to extremity. Yep, yep. <laughs> they are two different. Yes, yes. In the Boto, we see... The normal conical teeth up front, mm-hmm. you know, so typical dolphin teeth, and then flatter teeth, more mm. molar shaped in the back, probably because they take a lot of harder bodied prey. Armored catfish, they even noted turtles, but I assume smaller turtles, yeah, juveniles. Fresh, freshwater turtles, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, it's funny because when you said differentiated teeth, my guess was going to be, do they have blunter, bigger mm-hmm. teeth in the back? Because that's something we see in a bunch of animals. Yes. Very famously and notably alligators yep and crocodilians will often do that absolutely uh, they also noted that large catfish will also be torn into pieces before eating sometimes mm. which also makes them unusual for dolphins do they death roll i did not see anything <laughs> mention it because because what we're what we're getting oh. a picture of mm-hmm. here is cetaceans convergent with crocodilians yeah which is very cool one can only hope <laughs> these four have traditionally and often been grouped in a superfamily called Plantidostoidea due to their similarities 
and how specialized to rivers they all seem to be in basically the same ways. Mm-hmm. But molecular studies have disagreed with that and have shown that the Ganges dolphins don't seem to be closely related to the others at all. So the South Asian river dolphins seem to be their own pair or species separate from the rest. The Amazon and Yangtze are likely within oceanic dolphins, or at least allied, sister group maybe. Mm-hmm. And I've sometimes seen the La Plata dolphin, Pontoporia, also grouped in there, that they are a sister group within the infraorder Delphinida. So it seems... So, and it's, so it's not even that, like, the Asian species are close to each other and then the South American species are close to each other. Yep. There's a bit of sort of mixing and matching yeah. there. It just seems like... Interesting. Most are probably close to true dolphins, and then this one, <laughs> or these yeah. two, aren't. Well, and you also mentioned uh, at the, the top of our river dolphin discussion that there are other porpoises and dolphins yes. that are not, quote, true river dolphins. Most of them are singular populations or you know, right. random populations. So it seems like this is perhaps a thing that has just evolved several times. Absolutely. Cetaceans moving in to rivers. But specifically dolphins and porpoises doing it. Yes, absolutely. There are. We don't yet have any uh, baleen river. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> Which I don't think would work. No, you'd have that... to do something. Like, I'm pretty sure, I think it's the gray whale that sifts mud. Mm-hmm. So, like, you could do something like that. Well, if you have something like a humpback or a blue whale, I think what would work best for them is to just swim to the mouth of... Mm-hmm. Of a river oh. and just open their mouth and let the river empty into it yep. and then swim away. Yep. Just get a drink. <laughs> Nowadays, it is mostly considered that these morphological similarities, their adaptations for river life is convergent. Sometimes you will still see the Plantanistoidea supergroup as polyphyletic, you know, having multiple actual groups in it. Typically, though, I saw that the South Asian dolphins, the Ganges, are considered the only surviving member of that group anymore. Okay. And the rest are considered outside the Plantanistoid dolphins. So add one more thing that is convergent with crocodilians. Yeah. In that there's this one weird group that nobody knows what to do with. Yep. (laughs) A thing that strikes me as so weird about river dolphins, and you mentioned the reduced eyes, Mm -hmm. that they have different proportions. Also, I want to say this is the case for at least a couple of them. They often will have reduced pigments. Yes, they tend to be fairly singular colored, like tan or white. Pinkish. Yeah, or pink. Yeah, Which is a fascinating thing that they have in common with cave life. Yes. We talked about that in episode 112, that a loss of pigments and a reduction of vision, and especially an increase in your other senses for getting around like echolocation or sensory adaptations is something you see a lot in caves yep and this is similar adaptations for potentially kind of similar circumstance that you're living in an environment where there's just not a lot of light yep which is a very cool comparison to be able to make it also means that superficially they look very similar to beluga whales which are completely almost uncomparable to them yeah but for some reason, you kind of have a similar thing going on. It Very weird. The Platanistoids, the overall group that once included all of them, is still often looked at as a group of related extinct species. Hmm. There are members that still make it into this group or at least associated with it. It still might be polyphyletic. It still might have... Right. We may be artificially lumping multiple groups together. Absolutely. By accident. But there are 
notable fossil groups that seem to have some connection to river dolphins. Hmm. The exact relatedness is very unclear with some, but there are some really notable groups here. In total, between 15 to 22 different fossil groups, genera specifically, have been included in this superfamily at one time or another by various authors. So it has had a wide variety included and taken out and added in. This includes mostly, though, marine species, Mm -hmm. which makes sense to one degree that all of our river species that we predict and based on the evidence evolved from marine ancestors because that's where whales started. Where whales are from. Mm -hmm. But we don't actually have many seemingly freshwater fossil members. This Overall group, this superfamily is often considered to be another very early diverging member of toothed whales. So it is likely that at least our South Asian river dolphin is distantly related from all other toothed whales, while the others are at least more closer to true dolphins. We do see some in the family Plantanus today, which is the family that includes the modern South Asian river dolphins. There are a couple of freshwater fossil records from the Middle Miocene, so we do seem like they have a long record of being in rivers. But a lot of the others from this group are similar in the fact that they often have longer snouts, but often very, very strange looking and not sharing a lot of the other river-like features. Uh, Like we saw some reduced eyes in those fossil river species, but I didn't see it mentioned in any of these others. Mm. The flexible skeleton doesn't come up very often. What does tend to come up quite often is that a lot of them have procumbent tusk-like teeth sticking out the front of the mouth. Hmm. That is a very common feature of this splayed, almost horizontal set of teeth. Very prominent front teeth. The squalodelphinids, which is a group of typically medium-sized, so like bottlenose dolphin, were marine members seemingly related to this superfamily or within it that had some members with really odd jaws Furcasitas was one genus that had a member with a long jaw, but that was curved upward slightly, and then had those procumbent teeth. Researchers compared it to, like, Gariel's teeth and mm-hmm. some other fish that have those prominent teeth. They even compared it to Baryonyx, the, the uh, spinosaurid. Yeah, I was going to say there are plesiosaurs mm-hmm. that are known to have had teeth like that. And so, like many of them, it is interpreted for many of these that it was likely helping to catch prey. Mm-hmm. There were others that had more notable, you know, more standard teeth. There was another in this group, Notocetus, that had more typical interlocking, tougher teeth for grabbing harder prey, and even triangular and edged crowns, so possibly for shearing apart prey. We see a mixture of these features in the Squalodontidae, the shark-toothed dolphins, as they're known, because their front teeth were often conical and good for grabbing, while their back teeth were triangular and edged, which could be that they carried this over from the Bacillosaurids. It's hard to know since these have been noted as either a member of the superfamily or maybe early toothed whales just in general. A lot of these kind of fall into that. But it also had long snout with procumbent teeth that were so horizontal that many think it probably wouldn't have been super effective for catching prey and may have been for combat Mm -hmm. or display yeah so once again we're getting back into that weird beaked whale narwhal territory yep this is most notable in the group called the the wipatiidae which includes wipatia and a recent species the genus nihohe which we talked about in the news that had 
almost flat front teeth mm-hmm. and a flattened long snout that we think was likely using it like a sawfish. Yeah. This group is known for those extremely thin, long, protruding front teeth. So this seems to have been a trend in multiple groups, all which fall within this superfamily that is associated with river dolphins. Yeah. So this may have just been a big, long lasting group of dolphins that were just doing weird yeah. stuff. And we're not sure what the particular advantage for those kinds of teeth would be, but we see it over and over and over again. And some river dolphins today do have slightly more notable Mm -hmm. teeth, not nearly to the extreme, but there is a little bit of similarity in some of them. And then we get into some groups that also were associated with this potentially river dolphin supergroup, but did a completely other weird thing with their snouts. Your Hino Delphinidae, the long snouted dolphins have ridiculously long, thin snouts. These have either been grouped within this superfamily or maybe closer to true dolphins. They were successful during the Miocene. One particular genus was Ziphiocetus, which is famous for having an extremely long upper portion of the beak that went farther than the lower portion. Um, So an overbite as opposed to that other one you mentioned earlier, the underbite. Yep, very swordfish-esque. It also is only toothed partway up the snout. There's a long toothless section at the front. There's also a genus Encidelphus, which is another Peru species from the Miocene, considered potentially basal for this supergroup. Medium size, like three meters, with in a really long snout, both top and bottom, that is also flattened, kind of like the Waipatia. This one was also toothed not fully way up and had a tubular section at the front. And this is another trend that we see show up over and over in a lot of these fossil groups and other groups. The early beaked whales had long snouts. We see this in the modern river dolphins having longer snouts and some of their fossil members. And then one particular genus, Pomatodelphus, which had a snout that was five times longer than its brain case, which the longest snout we have for a dolphin today is the river dolphin, the Amazon river dolphin, which is not quite twice as long as its brain case. <laughs> so this was a ridiculously long snout. I didn't find lengths for most of these snouts, but mostly proportions. But I have pictures to show David. Yep. And like you said, like a gharial. Like a gharial. And more extreme. These are more extreme than any other aquatic vertebrate. <laughs> no other aquatic vertebrate has as long and as thin snouts as so this group. This is more like some birds. Yes. This is ridiculous extreme. And runs into a lot of the same questions that we talked about with Londrostrine crocs in the marine crocs episode. First off, this seems to be a mainly early Miocene feature, with it declining in the middle Miocene, and only a few making it passed into the Pliocene. So it seems like it was a major feature during one particular time, and then has become more and more reduced since then, to today us having pretty moderate individuals. Like our most extreme individuals are just slightly long snouted compared to any of these. There are, of course, the pros and cons that come with this of it making it really good for nipping at prey because you can move faster through the water. They might have been using it like a swordfish. You could hit fish with it Mm -hmm. while it's closed and then catch it. There's also the potential that it might have been used to probe into the sediment like that lower jawed porpoise, Simocetus. But you also lose a lot of the bite force that you would get at the tip of the jaw. And lose a lot of your mobility, because now you have this long snout sticking out. And there has been some suggested potential linking between this pattern and 
decreases in habitat size. That there might be something associated with that, possibly due to major sea level drops during these times. So some have tentatively proposed that this could be part of the trend we see with coastal and therefore then estuarian and river dolphins Mm -hmm. and why we seem to see a connection between long snouts and river dolphins, which now have a reduced habitat size. But that sounded like it was very much a, this idea has been put out there, but is not solidly held. It just might be connected to that shift to smaller habitats and then eventually freshwater. But we're not sure why we see so many with such ridiculously long snouts, especially why we don't see it beforehand or since the Miocene. The Miocene decided to make a bunch of unrelated groups of dolphins that had (laughs) Pinocchio snouts, and then they disappeared. So it's just kind of another Longerostrine mystery. Yeah, weird. (laughs) Right? Talking about comparisons to Crocs. Yep. There's another one. You you managed to turn a Wales episode into a Crocs discussion. It's what I do. Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we can wrap up. This was a long discussion because, boy... This was a whale of an episode. There are a lot of tooth whales, and they are all so interesting and weird. And I know <laughs> we didn't mention so many of them and their cool stuff. It's a very cool group. So please, if you have a favorite, let us know. If there is one of these that you like the best... We want to hear it if we didn't mention your favorite species, which probably, since I didn't actually mention most of the dolphins and porpoises, <laughs> so I probably didn't mention most people's favorite individual, let us know. You can request. We have the link to the form down in the description. Yep. So you can always ask for more. We can always come back again. Yes, and right, zoom yeah, in further. More and more whale episodes. Yep. But for now, we will wrap this up and get toward the end of the episode with our patron question. Every episode, we like to answer one of the questions from one of our patrons. You can submit these at certain levels of our Patreon, and we will answer them here on the podcast. Whose question are we answering today? Today, we are answering a patron question from Yanis, who asks, If somehow, due to magic, Mosasaurs returned, somehow Mosasaurs returned, (laughs) do you think they would be outcompeted by orcas? Uh, this is a very cool question. Yes. We like speculative stuff. Also, uh, well, this is a tooth whales question. Very fitting. And a squamates question. Right? So you're really, you're covering all the bases. <laughs> Absolutely a great question because that's, comparison has been made that mosasaurs were big predators and predators of big prey. Yes. So mosasaurs, in case this isn't the yep, first yep, time yep. you've ever heard us mention them, mosasaurs are the fully marine lizards of the late Mesozoic, which were shaped in many ways similar to toothed whales, uh, some sharks. They had that sort of macro predatory adaptation. We are built for taking down big prey. And there's been lots of comparisons made between, especially like the bacillosaurids and their cousins of those early, more serpentine whales and these more long-bodied mosasaurs. I looked, I found a bit of research on that and find that there is a bit of convergence between like their skull shape but mostly when they go to extremes of long-snouted or specializations for big prey. Mm-hmm. But typically, they don't actually seem to be super convergent. So right. it's hard to say that they were doing the same jobs or doing it in the same way. Because we see different trends. And truly, from what it sounded like, not as many solid trends in mosasaurs that where they kind of went all over the place. In whales, we see some more consistent trends 
yeah, in so a couple of directions. It may be that they could just naturally they would partition and yes. be eating different things. They might not have actually been doing the orca job as much as we tend to like to think of them doing. Yeah. I think that it's certainly true that there were mosasaurs eating large prey in the ocean. Yes. Like we see with orcas. I certainly think that there would be overlap if they lived in the same oceans. But, yeah, there's tons of mosasaurs that were specialized for eating hard-shelled mm-hmm. things or eating particularly soft-bodied things. Also, mosasaurs were largely restricted to warmer waters. Yes. Uh, now, they lived at a time in Earth history where most waters were warmer waters. Yeah, it's, that, that it's a warmer a, time, the Lake Cretaceous. A much wider range than they would have today. Whereas a lot of toothed whales, and in particular orcas very famously, are really good at being active at high northern and southern latitudes. Yes. So it's possible that even if they did live in the same oceans, they'd be able to differentiate into different parts of the world, different food stuffs. Also, also, the other thing that comes to mind for me is that mosasaurs, you know, we're comparing one species of orca to to many, many, many species. (laughs) Uh, Tons of mosasaurs would be too small to truly compete with orcas yes because they were porpoise and dolphin sized Mm -hmm. and then some mosasaurs are too big to truly compete with orcas because they were enormous yes huge huge now would mosasaurs and orcas prey upon each other almost certainly yep i have to imagine that they would i kind of the one of the thoughts that i had when i i first read this was kind of the situation in florida with the burmese python being introduced to the american alligator range and that now you have these two big but different reptilian predators. Mm-hmm. And definitely they are a threat to baby alligators. But an alligator can eat a python. So they are kind of balance each other out a little bit in that right. sense. Well, they eat different kinds of food. They have very mm-hmm. different hunting strategies. And they kind of mostly just leave each other alone. But like, you know, then not one is not overly eating the other. Yeah. But it does mean that their prey, and especially their shared prey items, are losing out doubly. Yes. Which we have seen. Things like raccoons have just started disappearing. I wonder if we would see that if mosasaurs came back. That they would absolutely, like, a big mosasaur would take a small orca, or even a full-sized one if it could. Mm -hmm. But a pot of orcas, I don't think there's much that they can't take down. Right. So, would it be that orcas and mosasaurs both did okay, but baleen whales? Yes. Baleen whales are and gonna dolphins suffer. and dolphins are going to suffer. And seals just yeah. start <laughs> plummeting because now they are being attacked from both sides. So I think that mosasaurs are too diverse mm-hmm. for us to be able to say that they would truly be outcompeted yes. by orcas. But I also think that orcas are versatile enough to not be outcompeted by mosasaurs. I am hesitant to ever bet against orcas. <laughs> I mean, Same. like, that well, it's, you are big enough, powerful enough, and well-adapted enough. And then adaptable behaviorally enough. Yes. I, I, there's not much I wouldn't put it past you to eventually figure your way out yes. a- around it. So I think that what would happen is you would get an ocean that was just home to both yep. orcas and mosasaurs, which would simultaneously be one of the coolest oceans that there has ever been. And also one of the oceans I would least like to go into yep it's once again similar to the burmese python situation like this is cool and terrible (laughs) i uh used to get into conversations with people in grad school about uh what we thought the scariest animals were i used to go around and ask people because i thought it was a really fascinating question and for a long time my go-to answer was orchids yeah that not to be not in like a fear like keep me up at night they're so scary but just like 
what just conceptually what is the most impressive in kind of a frightening way that mm-hmm. you they are you they are just extremely efficient extremely versatile and extremely intelligent yes and that's a that's an intimidating combination well they're they're one of those animals where they they a lot of the things they do feel like it was made up for a video game where it's like <laughs> you know here you know here's this this big dolphin and they're like oh man what if it had a ram attack it's like all right well that's a little bit no no they if, have a ram attack what if it used its tail to flip seals through the air yeah like a catapult what if it yes. just, you know, if it's on its back couldn't it just be like a catapult once uh, that's a little silly isn't it? nope no no they do that they do that that's a thing they do uh, just what what if they you know <laughs> just seesawed ice it's right. knock penguins off. Like of a it. cartoon? Yes. Yes. Like a cartoon. Yes, correct. It's like a cartoon, <laughs> except it's real and therefore horrifying. Uh, uh, very unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> like I it's I would I think they will be sticking around. <laughs> Listen, I'm Team Mosasaur all the way. Yes. But also nah, I think we're still gonna have that they'd still be orcas. Yep. Thank you, Yanis, for that question. That is a very fun, thought provoking question. Very cool. If if you figure out whatever that magic spell will be, let us know. So that we can pay attention. Watch from afar. (laughs) And with that, we can wrap up this episode. I had a ton of fun learning about all of these things. This this is a a, a chunky, chunky episode. So thank you all if you made it to the very end. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who suggested and requested this topic. Thank you to our patrons. Yes, indeed. To everyone who interacts with us in all of the various ways. Uh, Like Will mentioned, uh, send us your request for episode topics. There is now a super convenient way to do it, which is a form on our website. Mm -hmm. Link in the episode description. And as we mentioned, we will be at Dragon Con coming up soon. Right at the start of September. Come say hi. So if you're there, say hi. If not, we will be trying to share pictures and uh, uh, putting those up on the Discord and elsewhere. So feel free to join the conversation and keep an eye out for those. And then after Dragon Con, we will uh, start building up the hype for Spooky. So stay tuned for that. And we release episodes every fortnight. We sure do. You know, we talk a lot about how we don't have an a, outro. a set yeah. outro. Yeah. Or like a, like it'd be good to have like a little catchphrase at the end. That has become... That's the catchphrase. That's the catchphrase. That's always my thinking of, is there anything the pro- else I need to say before I say that? Yes. The problem is we release episodes every fortnight is not a, fin- a, not a final sentence. No. You can't, we can't say that and then cue the intro, uh, the outro music. That it, it's not a it's not a closer. No, because we we then southern goodbye and ramble. Right, so we say that mm-hmm. it, it it itself doesn't end the discussion. Yes, but then we don't have a thing. No, so that I I think that that's the signifier that we've said all the important stuff. Yeah, if you tune out now, then you're if probably you've heard fine. us say that sentence. You're welcome to you're welcome to leave. We're probably not going to say anything else important until the the outro music. I saw one YouTube video that had one of those end in cards for like the check out our other videos and so blah blah. And then it's like <laughs> hope you enjoy that video unless you just skip to the end like I do because I love the end cards and I don't know why I always think of that whenever they make funny end cards where there are somewhere it's like no I do want to see it because you're good at these yeah well <laughs> sign off phrase we hope to be like them someday. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.